Hey guys, Jeff here. Derek and I hope you had a chilling but safe time trick-or-treating last night. For this year's Halloween retrospective, we've put together a collection of our previous episodes I think you're going to enjoy. We're going with a general theme of possession for this one, and we're reaching back to the earliest days of this podcast. In fact, you're getting a triple feature. Check the show notes for timestamps for each specific film being reviewed. First up is our review of The Autopsy of Jane Doe, and I think you'll have fun with this one because it comes from our fifth episode ever. Back then, we were going blow by blow through every plot point, so we hope you have fun reliving the movie with us, but we also welcome you to have a few laughs at our expense as you hear two guys still trying to figure out this whole podcasting thing. Second, the triple feature is one of my personal favorites, The Exorcism of Emily Rose. One of the more unique aspects of this one is that Derek and I talk through the concept of possession as a real-world possibility, and how something like that might come to pass. And then last in the lineup is the granddaddy of horror movies, The Exorcist. This originally went up nine months ago, almost to the day of this recording, and was the subject of our 10,000 download special. Derek and I tried to cover everything there is to know about this movie. I'm sure some of you will know even even more, but I trust it'll be an enjoyable revisit. And then you can get on social media or our Facebook group and let us know what we missed. Derek and I will be back again next week looking at Netflix's new Sabrina series. And remember, we would still love to hear your scary stories for a special episode of this podcast. You can give us a call at 615-486-4183. Again, that number, 615-486-4183. Leave a voicemail and then we'll play your scary story on the episode. As usual, you can connect with us on most social media platforms at the handle Scary Podcast. In particular, we'd like for you to check out our Facebook group. It's called We Saw Something Scary, and in our opinion, it's maybe the best use of Facebook. You can find Derek at DerekZoo.com, and I'm at Right Jeff on most social media platforms. So thanks again for listening, guys, and enjoy the Halloween 2018 triple feature from Saw Something Scary. Talk to you soon. All right, welcome to another episode of Saw Something Scary, a podcast where we watch movies and let you know whether or not it's scary. I'm your host, Derek Zhu. Alongside me as always, uh, man, I don't have a clever don't have a clever, clever title for you today. That's okay. Jeff Wright, my co-host, is here, and today we're going to talk about uh, the movie The Autopsy of Jane Doe, or as I like to call it, The Haunted Boobies. So, uh, yeah, the Autopsy of Jane Doe, man. I had no idea about this movie until you uh, said something about it the other day. And I went into it cold. Uh, no, no trailer, no, uh, no Wikipedia, no anything. Um, and I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoyed this movie too. I, I had heard about this movie maybe a week or two ago at best, reading some like best of 2016 lists, and I thought, well, that's a candidate for us. I did watch the trailer before I recommended it to you, but it, the trailer I saw, I don't know if there are multiple ones, but the trailer I saw did a great job of, of giving us what the broadest strokes are. Creepy basement, two guys working on a dead body, things go black. You know, it didn't, didn't give away too much. And so I felt like this was kind of a clean slate for me, too. And I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I thought that it thought that it did a really good job. The uh, the movie stars Emil Hirsch, uh, who you would know from, gosh, uh, Speed Racer and uh, a couple other different things. Let's see, what else is there? You know, I didn't recognize him from anything. When you said his name after we got done watching it, I thought, well, I know the name, but I thought he was kind of basically a fresh casting here. So I'm surprised to hear that there's, I don't know, an IMDb page for him. Yeah, uh, he was in, uh, here's here's some of the movies that he's been in that you may may or may not have, have heard of. Uh, the Girl Next Door, Imaginary Heroes, Lords of Dogtown, Okay, I saw Lords of Dogtown. Uh, yeah, with Heath Ledger, Alpha Dog, End of the Wild, Milk. Um, he starred in Speed Racer, and the only reason I remember Emil Irish is because 
I remember uh, when Speed Racer came out, it was supposed to be like the the next big movie. Yeah, that's what the Wojcikowski brothers yeah. or whatever. Yeah, the guys that, that directed. That's now the Wojcikowski sisters, I believe. Are they both yeah, sisters I think they now? both transitioned. Wow, okay. Um, I did not know that. I knew one did, but not the other one. So, uh, yeah, so they had come out with that, and that was supposed to be like the big thing. Of course, that's also the uh, the year that The Dark Knight came out, so nothing was going to beat yeah. The Dark Knight. Uh, and that movie tanked uh, Speed Racer. I never saw Speed Racer. That's the kind of movie that I normally would see just because of the like retro pop culture stuff to it. But the, And I mean, I remember seeing like it looks kind of uh, bright, poppy colors yeah. and whatnot, but I just could not bring myself to watch it. It's a lot like Avatar. Um, I don't know what your oh, opinions yeah. are of Avatar, but if not you didn't, not. yeah, if you didn't see Avatar in theaters, you're probably not going to like it. And I think the same thing for this movie, yeah. uh, for Speed Racer, not for The Autopsy of Jane Doe. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Brian Cox is also uh, in it. He, he was in Manhunter. He was in uh, X-Men 2. Yeah, he was uh, he was in the ring. He was the dad in the ring. He's been in the Bourne movies. Uh, Brian Cox is one of those guys that you may not know his name, but as soon as you see his face, you're like, oh, it's that, that guy. guy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and I think he does a phenomenal job in this movie. We talked just a little bit, and we'll get into it more. There's like one scene I would have tightened up if I were the one running the show, but other than that, he did a great job being a dad. Yeah, you know, kind of guy that you would. Uh, I told you during the watching the movie that if I'm ever in a terrifying nightmare scenario, I kind of want Brian Cox there as my dad to yeah. experience it with me. Absolutely. Uh, and, and this Brian Cox, not the one that electrocutes himself in the bathtub in the ring. Yeah, no. Yeah. Totally true. Yeah, I want I want That it. Brian Cox is a little less uh, reliable. Right. Hey guys, Jeff here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that Derek accidentally dropped a spoiler before we got into the actual spoiler territory. So if you want to miss that, hit the 15 second skip on your podcast player and it will take you safely past. All right, back to the episode. I want uh, I want the guy that'll run through smoke and, and stab, stab your girlfriend with an axe, Brian Cox. Spoiler alert. Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> I want the guy that will go through smoke and stab your girl. I did it again. It's just <laughs> bound to happen all the time. We didn't go back far enough. Okay. So with that in mind, I guess this is a good time to jump into spoilers because we didn't watch any trailers. There's nothing that we are talking about that's what's coming out. You just got spoiled a little. It's not a huge spoiler. I think, I mean, I saw it coming. I, I told you about it. Ten minutes before the report happened. Yeah, at this point, I'm thinking that you're one of the precogs from that <laughs> Tom Cruise movie. I keep looking for a little wooden ball to drop from somewhere. The precog from the Mummy. The Mummy, not quite the Mummy. What? Oh, oh. a Minority Report. Oh, okay. I was back just gonna, when, I was just gonna keep doing the wrong Tom Cruise movie. That was, uh, those were back when Tom Cruise only looked forty. Right. Now he looks thirty-five. He's how's that? How's that work? Scientology. You know that was a Spielberg movie too. I know we're getting way off track here, but do you know? Do you know Minority Report was a still a Spielberg movie? No, I didn't know that. I'm not. I kind of liked it. Yeah, I did too. Yeah, I thought it was a decent movie. It made me like Colin Farrell. Yeah, and that's saying something. Do you ever listen to the Dropkick Murphys? Yeah, I kind of feel like if I hung around Colin Farrell, it would just be played out to Dropkick Murphys. More than likely. Uh, you said that uh, the director Andre uh, Orvidal. Well done, man. Yeah. Way to come through yeah. with that pronunciation. Hey, man. Stay, you, hey, when, slow clap. 
when you've got when you've got an excessively long and exotic last name, you tend to stick the landing on the other ones. Over a doll. Over a doll. You said he was a part of a, or he directed another film, Troll Hunters. Is that what it was? Troll Hunters. Okay. Yeah. Me and my wife watched that several years ago, sort of on a lark. Mm-hmm. And my wife hates horror movies, but was happy or was kind enough to watch that one with me, and she came away really enjoying it. Okay. It was well done. The monsters didn't look really cheesy. It was sort of well written. Yeah. And I feel like that's something we would say about this one that, that they don't fall for a lot of stereotypical like horror movie tropes here. They're not a lot of stupid decisions. Yeah. So yeah, Troll Hunter is totally worth tracking down and watching, you know, one of your streaming services or whatnot. Cool. After seeing Troll Hunters and connecting the two, I'm gonna pay attention to this guy's career. I'm I, I have high hopes. Yeah. Over a doll. Over a doll. Andre over a doll. Those uh Swedish special characters threw me off. Here. And it might we might even have it off just a little bit, but I, I don't no think way, it's, man. Okay. No way. Yeah. Not us. Yeah, no, we nailed it. I mean my southern accent makes sure that Every pronunciation. Overdoll is Andre, fella. So yeah, so it's um the synopsis of it is uh, uh again like we said, Emil Hirsch, Brian Cox, father and son, coroners who experience supernatural phenomenon while examining the body of an unidentified woman. And I'll just go ahead and say this, and I think this is something we probably ought to start saying uh, through our podcast. If this is a movie that you want to see, do me a favor, turn this off right now and go watch the movie. And, and then back. yeah, and then come back when you're when you're done. We'll and be here waiting on. We'll be here. So that being said, obviously spoilers are about to come through. So this is your last chance to turn the podcast off before you watch this movie. Don't tweet us. Be like, man, you guys spoil the movie. We just told you this is your chance. Three, two, one. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. So where are we even at with this family mortuary? Do they tell us? No. It's somewhere southern. The um, Wikipedia page, I think, says... No, it doesn't say. It says small town. Small town. That Yeah, that's what we're at. Small town, old house, creepy death basement where they do their mortuaries. It looks like... Uh, and this is a shout-out to the Sparta folk. Uh, it looks like something on Johnson Road. Yeah, sure. Sparta, Tennessee, Johnson Road. This place is probably there. Yeah, like that old house that uh, that Andy and Stephanie Pennant used to live in. Yeah. That's exactly what that's it, it. Like. Yeah, so I know nobody listening to this yeah, gets that, yeah. uh, but Derek, what he just said is precisely accurate. So think about white siding house, old country uh, look to it. I don't know what the architectural style is. Maybe Victorian, something like sure. that? Sure. That sounds right. Sure. Yeah. We'll go with that. Um Again, small town, family-owned business, mortuary. Um, I told you, though, during watching the movie that if you own that house and that basement and you saw up dead bodies under it, you deserve everything that happens to you. Yeah, you deserve every evil that's about to befall you. Yeah, you should uh, you should thank your lucky stars for every minute where a portal to hell doesn't open up and swallow everything you love into it. Yeah, I'm really surprised that they made it as long as they did. Like it's, it, it was like uh, what three or four generations in is what they said, and nothing evil like that has ever happened in the house. You would think that with the times they would remodel the house, bring it up to code, probably. <laughs> like maybe. Do you think you there think, were drains? Yeah. There drains for body fluid. But I mean, we saw that the crematorium looked like it had been there since 1865. Yeah, it... Uh, like, they burned Civil War people in that crematorium. In that crematorium. Hard to believe there's adequate ventilation there. Sure. Probably the most 
unrealistic part of a movie about a supernatural haunting connected with an autopsy is that that location, if we're supposed to really believe it, didn't automatically turn into a horror site. Yeah. That revisited every family generation, Yeah, you know, They're, every seventh year or whatever. They should be living on top of a hellmouth. That's what I would think a hellmouth would look like. Sure. If I were going to locate a hellmouth somewhere, I'd probably look for a property yeah. that lined up to that. Now, when we, when we first started the movie... Uh, the movie starts out with uh, it's what like a, a burned house, not the not the mortuary, uh, but there's there's a burned house and inside inside some dirt and some soot is the body. The cops don't know what happened. They can't you know no sign of forcible entry. Uh, everyone's everyone's dead or, or I want to say it was burned. There were lots of crime scene pictures, so. I think I think I caught that someone broke into the house, was shot by the homeowner, but also then maybe shot the homeowner. So like three people died. They got to the basement and found that body there, but not super clear on that part. Yeah, they found a dead girl uh, with no again no sign of. I think it was no sign of forcible entry. It was just it just a big homicide. It occurred. Yeah, and the police officers didn't know what was going on, right. but they knew that they now had this Jane Doe and they had to take it somewhere else because the press would want cause of death by in the morning in this small little sleepy town that probably has a uh, once a week newspaper published right it was very it was very sparta-esque and i'm not bagging on sparta but it was very like small, just town, small town uh you know they they keep talking about how they they hadn't seen certain things in the body they'd been up north so clearly it was a sm- it was a southern town small southern town uh i just kept getting sparta vibes off of it like yeah. like it, it that house could have been six miles away from gum springs baptist church and i would have been like yeah that makes sense that's exactly what yeah saying, yeah so they, so I mean, I think we're kind of bagging on this movie. Like these are major plot holes. That's cool. I mean, none of this, none of this strains credibility the way that the first ten minutes of Incarnate. No. You know, I mean, the the writing just from the introduction here shows itself to be of a quality different than almost anything we've watched, except for my feelings about Split. I know you don't join me there. Uh, I wish I wish our listeners could see the eye roll that was just performed. But that's really the only movie that we've watched so far that I would even compare this to. Open, uh, excuse me, Don't Breathe, that was a tight movie. Well yeah. done. But the plot and scripting wasn't particularly... Um, no, there were holes. Front and center with that. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. There, were, there were definitely big holes in this. Yeah, we're not trying to we're not trying to bag on this. I mean, every almost every movie starts out slow, and you've got to build this world that we're about to go into. So, I mean, that just that's just the way it goes. That's, yeah, and this one doesn't ask too much of you no not at all not at all uh you see this body they go oh we gotta get it to the other morgue and then you meet uh tommy and austin tommy played by brian cox and austin played by emil hirsch and they are uh they are trying to figure out the cause of death on a very badly burned victim yeah there's a camaraderie there though so they're like, like there's some classic rock playing and you can tell that uh they work well together so they're Moving pretty quickly through this thing, and then it becomes, I guess, time to just wrap up for the night. Time to put away their cutting tools, and Austin has a date, I think. Mm-hmm. With his girlfriend, Emma. Emma. And uh, Emma is played by the lovely, you can cut this part out, Ophelia Levybond. Ophelia Levybond? Uh-huh. Who is from uh, from England. Why Why are all of these, why are these, all these actors and actresses coming from England to do these horror <laughs> I don't know. It seems like every movie that we've watched so far has been somebody trying to put on a bad English accent or a bad American accent that's from, from England. Uh, if you watch 
you watch Elementary on CBS, she is, she plays Kitty Winter. So that's how you would know her. Do you watch Elementary? I on do CBS? not, sir. I didn't know there was such a thing. My household is a Sherlock household. We don't watch any other forms of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> this is a Sherlock Holmes franchise. Elementary. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. I straight well, up pictured an elementary school. You think it was like a bad teacher type thing? Yeah, exactly. She was playing Cameron Diaz's part in Bad Teacher? That's yeah. hilarious. Um, well, sorry, then, this, then my Sherlock reference really must have freaked you out for a second. Well, no, it brought a lot of clarity, actually. I appreciate that. <laughs> Things are reframed for me. What Sherlock Holmes got to do with an elementary school? What, uh, what business do you have trying to do a Sherlock Holmes franchise when Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock is in existence? Well, because, because there's money to be made. Not everybody gets BBC or PBS. Well, I guess everybody gets PBS, but, you know, jo- Johnny Lee Miller and Lucy Liu are playing Holmes and Watson. I'm sorry. It sounded like you said Lucy Liu. I did playing. say Lucy Liu. He's playing Watson. Okay. There's a big part of me right now that's very thankful I wasn't familiar with. Uh, okay. So there's a date. Austin's ready to go for the date. Yes, he is. And his girlfriend takes a weird turn because now all of a sudden she wants to check out the dead bodies he works with. Yeah. And her reasoning for that was, well, you've seen me at my job. I want to see you at yours. And he says, well, you work at a bookstore. So, again, small town, yeah. mortuary. Family-owned business. They have three bodies out of, like, six cooler holes that mm-hmm. we see. All three of them are bodies that died under causes that are going to mangle the the human form in a way to make them grotesque. There wasn't anybody who died in that little town of just being 80 years old or a heart attack. No. We had uh, a mesothelioma victim whose body was ashen and miscolored yeah almost almost rotting already yeah, rotting is a good description yeah we had a shotgun suicide so we don't really see the face but we see a, a bloody um sheet over an indentation yeah and then what was the third body oh it was the burn the burn victim the burn victim yeah guy. So they pull out mesothelioma woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and you think that there's some kind of weird connection or something between Emma and the the lady because she immediately goes, no, 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 not that one. And I thought maybe that was going to come back and it didn't. So I guess we're supposed to understand that she was just kind of grossed out by that. I guess so. Wanted to see a more tamed body, but that ain't happening. That's not happening today. Because the next tray is shotgun. Yeah, shotgun Fred. Shotgun Fred. And she reaches to pull back the covering to see the blast site, and something very important happens. Well, uh, the first thing that happens is uh, Austin grabs her hand and says, you don't want to see that. And Brian Cox, uh, Tommy, is just egging it on. Like, oh, yeah, go ahead. Let her see it. Let's see what's going on. And that's where we find out uh, she pans down to the foot or the ankle area, and we see a bell. Tied to the toe of the the dead body. And so she asks Tommy, what's with the bell? And he explains that back in, uh, what was it, the early... We'll just call it the day. Yeah, back in the day, good job, uh, that you know, the people couldn't tell whether they were comatose or dead. So they would tie a bell around their foot, and if it rang, then son of a gun, probably ought to stop cutting this guy open. How crazy is that? Yeah, man, but I mean, so many of our like horror movie tropes, and even the characters like the vampire, you know, that's tied pretty much to these... People who are buried alive. Sure. Or if they weren't buried alive um, and they were exhumed in some kind of panic-stricken sort of mass hysteria, they weren't real clear that fingernails kept growing. And yeah. 
that gums receded, so it looked like they had fangs and claws. I mean, so much of that stuff is trapped in our cultural consciousness, and it gives us horror. I mean, it gives us the stuff we're still creating horror from today. Yeah, I really hope that that uh, that bell around the foot thing does not come back in any kind of weird, creepy way, though. While no, we're I'm sure it won't. Yeah, I'm sure it's not that big of a deal. Uh, Emma again goes to pull back the the uh, death shroud. Thank you, bloody death shroud. Yeah, bloody death shroud. And Tommy rings the bell, and we get our first jump scare of the movie. Yeah, this is just after you said, I bet this thing's going to be full of jump scares. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there's jump scare number one. Yeah. Your new nickname is The Prophet. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah. So, that happens. Uh, Emma and Austin are about to leave to go on their date. And uh, and then, all of a sudden, Sheriff Bird comes down. Down the elevator. They're waiting to go up to go on their date. With our Jane Doe. He rolls through. They head upstairs. Um, what's Austin's dad's name? What's Brian? Tommy. Called? Tommy tells Austin, go on. You go kids have, have your fun. You go have your date. I'll handle this body by myself. Uh, the, the two lovebirds head up to the kitchen. They have a conversation that hints that apparently they're wanting to steal away, move away from this town. But Austin is... Uh, Reluctant to tell his dad about these decisions because he his dad's still recovering from the death of his mother, uh, Austin's mother, Tommy's wife. This frustrates his girlfriend. They decide, though, that Austin is going to go back and help with the autopsy and that the girlfriend will return later that night around 11 o'clock and they will resume their date with a few drinks and a midnight showing at the local Cinemaplex. Austin turns on his heels is back downstairs to help Dad begin the autopsy of this chain doe. So we've got a chalkboard where they're going to take notes and drawings of, of the body. We've got a video camera recording. We've got all the latex gloves and gowns in place. And we hear that this is this autopsy is going to take place in four stages. Anything I've missed in that little run-up? No, that's, that's it. Yeah, so they begin... The autopsy with examination of the exterior, right? Yes. And I'll just tell you, it was at this point I was realizing that there had to be some kind of model for the body they're working on. And I thought, well, they've done a really good job of creating a lifelike dummy to lay on this slab, um, only to find out that there's an actual actress who plays this role. Yeah. Uh, Olwyn. Oh, man. Olwyn something. Yeah, Olwyn Kelly... Edwards? Yeah, I think that's that right. could be o- way Olwen, off. I know Olwen, Olwen Kelly. Olwen Kelly is what she's known as on uh, on Wikipedia. Okay, so Olwen Kelly is actually playing the part of a dead woman laying on a slab naked. And I don't know how you feel about it, but command performance. Yeah, man. Um, I You know, you, you want to know if there were certain times where they, like, switched it out and stuff. But if she's there the entire, what was the movie, 95 minutes probably? Something like that. And she's on that slab for 93 of it? Or, well, 85 of it, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, it's really, really strong. Locked into character. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they manipulate her body. Mm-hmm. They get into her mouth. I mean, I'm, I know special effects and stuff is taking place here, but... And, of course, it's an edited movie. Sure. But she looks like a dead chick. Yeah. And uh, maintains that the whole time. Yeah. So, what's the first thing they find out about her? I think it's that... The she, eyes. The eyes. So, she got cloudy eyes, yeah. uh, which... Uh, Tommy tells us, indicates that the body had to be dead for a long time. But that doesn't match the lack of decomposition of the external features. Flesh is perfect, young, so something's off here. Yeah. 
you know, something's, something's not right. And then the next thing they see is that uh, both of her wrist and her ankle bones are shattered. Yes. And that was the first squeamish part for me where he, like, wiggled that bone inside of her ankle. Yeah, man. Oh, bone down. on bone. That's just not something I'm good at handling. Then they move to her mouth, right? Uh, they go for the nails and the hair where oh, they find right. peat. Peat. Which I'm underneath still, her. Yeah, peat. underneath her, her, her nails, uh, fingernails, toenails, and some in her hair. And peat is just denser dirt, according to the dialogue of this movie. But I'd always, if you'd asked me what's peat, I would have said dirt. Yeah. Apparently that's not true. And I guess the, the biggest thing about that was is that peat is typically found in the northern U.S., which is setting up context clues to find out the big reveal later at on. At the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, so there's peat underneath her nails. Then they move to the mouth. Yeah, then they find the whole thing with the tongue. What was the whole thing with the tongue, Gary? Uh, the tongue has uh, been non-surgically removed, and one of her teeth is missing. Yeah. So stuff's going on in her mouth. Yeah. As uh, Austin's going to get stuff to take an impression, I guess, for dental records, mm-hmm. Tommy begins extracting a thread from yeah. the throat. Gross scene there. Um, where do we go from there? Well, uh, from there we go to the internal examination, and that's when the radio gets wonky. And decides to uh, start randomly switching channels by itself. There's some screaming. There are there there is some screaming. Yeah. That comes through the radio, and there's some static and distortion. And then I'm assuming like a 50s, 40s pop song about let the sun shine in. Yeah. Let the sun shine in. Um, yeah. That begins to play. Okay, cool. They kind of press on, even though they think it's weird. Um, you know, a lot gets done in this movie for it being just some guys going over a body looking for clues, right? Yeah, there it's um, it's CSI Hellmouth. Yeah, CSI Hellmouth. That's pretty good. They do initially examine her internally through her lady parts, mm-hmm. and she's been brutalized internally, right? Yeah. And then it's time from there for a Y incision to open her up and take a look inside. Yep. And uh, when they that's when phase two of this four stage mm-hmm. autopsy. Yeah. When they cut her open, uh, she begins to bleed profusely, uh, which is something that only happens with fresh corpses. But again, we're seeing uh, differences where the eyes are cloudy, so she should be dead. She should have been dead for a few days, but now she's bleeding profusely, um, so it should be um, should be fresh. Uh, they both, I guess. Austin's the first person to talk about her her uh, stomach being abnormally small. Her waist is too small. Yeah. Her, his dad speculates that maybe she had been made to wear a corset. Um, to course, has been out of style for hundreds of years by now. Yeah, I think they know that that's maybe not um, that's not common in their day, and so they're starting to develop this theory that she was maybe part of a human trafficking or prostitution mm-hmm. ring uh, because her hands, I mean, her wrists and ankles would have been bound. Cut her tongue out maybe so she wouldn't talk or make any more noise. Corset her to make her more. Shapely for uh, the customers, I guess. Gross. I need to take a shower. He collects, uh, Austin collects blood from her mouth, I think, that's leaking. I think it's from the, the incision. Oh, from the incision. Yeah, that's right. Incision. Sticks it in the fridge, but it doesn't stay in the fridge. Yeah, there's there's a huge spill, um, which I don't even know if that actually happened or not. Yeah. And I, you know, and I guess it really in wasn't. In hindsight. Yeah, it really wasn't ever settled. No, but happen. so he spends his time cleaning, and meanwhile, Tommy is cutting into her internal organs. He finds out that the internal organs don't, you know, along with everything else so far, don't really match up with the quality. I mean, I hate to use that term, but the 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 
fresh state of her external appearance isn't matching what he finds inside of her. So they find her lungs and they're severely blackened, right? Uh, so black in that it's it's not something that could be happened by smoking. They think says she you know she could have smoked impacts a day for thirty years and this wouldn't have happened. Yeah. So it looks like some kind of internal burning. Yeah, like a third degree burn. I think is something that they say in the in yeah. the movie. And then the other organs have these white lesions on them that look like maybe scar tissue from um, what you would expect from stabbing. Right. But again, her body has no marks of her epidermis being penetrated. So. Yeah. How'd they get there on those internal organs? Um, while while Austin is trying to clean up the blood, Tommy gets pierced by something, and, and you never do see what it is. I was hoping that they would show what was going on, but he gets pierced by something inside of Jane Doe. Yeah, it kind of like cuts his wrist. Yeah, like cuts his wrist pretty bad. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and there there wasn't really wasn't really much of a payoff on that. I don't guess. Uh, Austin hears a sound outside the examination room, and then sees a uh, a standing figure in a mirror. And I guess that's something we need to, we need to talk about is in the hallways of this uh, morgue. There's these big mirrors that you would see in like convenience stores. Yeah, or a department store. Yeah. To, like let people see around Those corners. Big oval shaped mirrors that let you see what all's going on. And so in that. Now uh, Austin is seeing a figure. Uh, he keeps hearing something in the air shaft, uh, which is a callback to earlier in the movie where uh, he's finishing up the first body. Yeah, that's right. And and hears something in the air shaft, and it's the cat. Yeah, a cat drops out, has a mole that it's caught. So apparently it's normal for the cat, the family cat, to run around in the air ducting of this moor. He, he starts looking for that same thing, whatever this noise is that he's heard. Which at that point... I'm just ready, again, to blame them for whatever happens. Sure. you hear a noise in your scary, creepy death morgue late at night, don't go by yourself looking for it. Um, again, I don't think this is sort of that horror movie trope of, like, don't look in there. But, again, acknowledging that, I'm going to say don't go looking for it by yourself. Right. Uh, he ignores that rule, though. Does not come to his ruin, though. He looks into a vent. And what does he see in that vent, man? It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, does he fall out of his chair at this point? When he looks into the vent, he sees something move quickly across the vent inside of it that frightens him, and he falls off the stool he's standing on, I think. And then in his days, he sees a figure that he thinks is something else, and then it's his dad. It's it's Tommy. Tommy comes in. He's like, what in the world's going on? Then they open the vent, and tragically, Stanley, the cat, is very badly hurt, um, mortally, fatally wounded at this point. Brian Cox, or Tommy, knows what to do with a mortally injured injured cat. And just snaps its neck. Yeah. This isn't sadistic and twisted. Like no, you can not tell at this all. is an emotional moment for him. He does a good job of communicating this is painful for him because he cares about the cat or whatever, but straight up breaks its neck to put it out of its misery in a way that I have I mean, I grew up on a farm. Mm-hmm. Animals don't get gentle treatment there. I've seen you know, I hope this doesn't freak out any by listening, but animals who are wounded and don't have hope for recovery, I mean, I've seen several get put down, sure. sort of mercy killings, never anything so hardcore as Tommy's death neck snap. Thing. Yeah. But of course, I mean, you're, you're talking about a guy who's been around death his entire life, you know, yeah. like this is the third or fourth generation, like they said, of, of having the crematorium in the mortuary. So this guy has been around dead bodies enough, I guess, that after a while, it's, uh, you know, the, the law of diminishing returns. No, after a while, it's just, oh, okay, well, this is what we got to do, and snaps the cat's neck and then throws him in the crematorium. His private crematorium. Yeah. 
Got a little peephole. Yeah, a little peephole. He asks for a minute away from Austin to be alone with the burning cat corpse. Which we find out maybe three minutes later that he doesn't necessarily like the cat, It's uh, but the cat was his wife's. And one of the last things that he had uh, left of her. Yeah. And I think he even says, like, well, Stanley was a pain in the butt, but it was your mother's. It was your mom's, yeah. Uh, this does not slow our man down, though. Once he has done his mourning for his wife's cat, he is back in the game. Which was literally a minute. Yeah, like had a moment of reflection there with the crematorium, and this guy's ready to slice and dice yeah. once again. And so uh, they're back in the examination room, and this is where they find the Jimson weed, mm-hmm. I guess is the, the right way to put that, uh, in, in Jane's stomach. And at this point, they are extracting from her intestines, and they find this gym, this Jimson weed. Uh, like, it looks like a flower. Yeah. looks like a, a hardened, blackened flower. Yeah, Austin doesn't recognize it, but Tommy's quickly to his bookcase, pulls down the volume on weird stuff you find in Dead Girl's Stomach. Which is right next to the Bible, conveniently. Right next to the Bible. I mean, really, those two books. Yeah, hand in hand. Yeah, he's covered. Um, and we find out that uh, the Jimson Weed is a paralyzing agent uh, that, again, is found north of the country. Uh, so at this point, was that where I made the Salem, Massachusetts quote or joke? Yeah, and I I had no idea that you were in profit mode again. But you said, oh, hey, Salem, Massachusetts, and we're off. So they keep digging around the body. At this time, the, the radio does some more freaking out, telling them that uh, a, a storm's coming in, a nor'easter kind of storm. There's going to be a lot of rainfall, a lot of wind. You don't want to be out in this, but the last thing we hear from the radio announcer who says... You will not get out. Yeah. You're not going to get out. And Austin turns to look. The moment's passed. Tommy doesn't care. Tommy cares not, because this body needs to be sliced. Yeah. Officer Burke needs to know something by the morning. We got to get this trick taken care of. Yeah. Did did you say trick? You didn't call the dead girl a trick, right? I did. You did. Yeah. So... Also, because witches do tricks. Oh, I see. I see. Um, We find that there's a bag in her stomach as well. Yes. And that bag is cloth, has writing on it. And inside the cloth bag in her stomach is a tooth that is apparently the tooth that was missing from her mouth. Uh, And then they have a special cloth fragment viewing table. Sure. That they lay this thing out on. I think that's its actual scientific name. Yeah, totally scientific name. Uh, Laid out, they see Roman numerals, which Mm -hmm. are right up on the board. So we've got 27. Yeah. Right? Um, And it's at this point that I I don't know why this is necessary in an autopsy, but Tommy has separated this poor girl's skin from her underlying tissue. Yeah. And so he unfolds her flesh like it's a jacket or something that she was wearing. That's, yeah. It was one of the uh, one of the oddest autopsy scenes that I've ever seen. Yeah, it was forced a little bit, in my opinion. Like I, I've never seen that. I mean, I obviously I've never had done an performed an autopsy or anything like that. So I don't know if that's something that's a necessity. I would doubt that it is. Maybe he. It's not necessarily shown in the movie that he like sees something and he goes, "Oh, we gotta figure he, out what's he going asks on." He asked for help, but. Uh. I'm trying to think of the autopsy. I've never been a CSI right. watcher. I'm assuming there's autopsy stuff there. I've watched a lot of X-Files in my days. Yeah. I've watched Dana Scully work over a lot of bodies, and I never watched her separate the flesh from the yeah uh, whatever you would call it underneath it. Yeah. I, it just seemed like a really forced plot point. But it sets up something pretty cool. No, yeah, it, it does. It does. Um, as a matter of fact, that scene, uh, the director says, was his favorite scene in the movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Where when, when, when they reveal 
uh, what we're about to talk about. Which is? Uh, that basically when you open up her skin, it's the exact same thing that was on the cloth, right? The decorations or patterns yeah. uh, on the inside, inside of her skin. Of her skin. So it's all these symbols and Roman numerals and this like, uh, I wouldn't say, what would you say was in the middle of it? Almost looked like the Illuminati symbol, but yeah. Something Illuminati is pretty good. Circular, yeah. sort of a figure within it. Um, and we really don't get a good look at it. I think part of the reason we don't know is because this is when the lights pop. Yeah. Everything uh, goes sideways here. So the light fixtures above shatter. And I think also don't the doors to the um, freezer pods where they're like storing the bodies, don't those pop open? They do. Well, you know, uh, that's something that we, we failed to mention. A couple times during the autopsy, one of the doors went ajar. It's slowly and opening. And Austin had to go back and close it. And uh, and so that's something that we see in this moment is the door starts to open. The lights explode. Everything goes black. Austin picks up a flashlight, shines it, notices that all the doors are open now, and then shines it again at his father, who's maybe, what, six inches away from the doors? Just staring into just, the abyss. Yeah, just staring in, just like, okay, here we yeah. go. There's some there's some naughty words said. Oh, yeah. And they do the only sensible thing possible. They decide it's time to get out of there. Yeah. Which, again, I, I want to give, uh, what's his name? Swedish director. Oh, man. Uh, oh, man. Now I'm not going to be able to do it. Yeah. yeah. Andre. Andre. We'll yeah. just call him Andre. Yeah. Uh, I want to give Andre credit. They don't do something moronic. Or Vidal. Or Vidal. Well done, man. Thanks. Um, they don't do something stupid like, well, let's try to find the backup power switch and get the lights back on or whatever. They realize this is not normal. We need to leave. Right. Uh, heading out, though, as you would imagine, doesn't go in such a way that they're actually able to leave the facility. They feel like they're being pursued by something. Uh, what was it that was pursuing them at that point? I can't remember. Was it was it just like a shuffling corpse? Oh, they hear the bell again. Is that where they first start to hear the, hear the bell? I think that's right. So... They decide to leave. I know that the elevator's not working. Oh, no, that's uh, right. Then, they haven't heard the bell yet. Yeah. The elevator's so not working. The elevator's not working, so they go up this uh, Phantom of the Opera spiral staircase, and they're trying to hit – because remember, the morgue is inside of a cellar, basically. Mm-hmm. They're trying to open up the cellar door. Um, Tommy says that the old maple tree or the old oak tree or something has fallen onto it. Austin can't get cell signal. They run back down into the office, and Tommy picks up the phone to try to call the sheriff. But the connection is very spotty and disrupted. Lo and behold, never happens before. And then they hear the bell. Then they hear the bell. Uh, the door to the office is closed, but they hear the bell on the other side. Uh, Austin moves towards the door, mm-hmm. which is not the most rational choice. Right. Hears the bell grow closer and eventually drops down to the floor to look underneath the crack. And he sees the mesothelioma woman's foot, right? Yeah. With a bell tied around. And then the door starts to violently shake. Yeah, someone's trying to get in. Move the, uh, they, they move a filing cabinet in front of it, hold it. Um, that eventually fades away. The shaking stops. Dad realizes that where he'd been cut earlier, the bandaging has come loose and he's bleeding pretty heavily. So it goes into the bathroom that's part of the office there to clean up and thinks he sees something in the office uh, bathroom's shower stall. As he goes to check that out, I'm screaming at the TV, don't check it out without letting your son know, Yeah. right? But the son does look in time, and he sees uh, the silhouette of someone in the shower stall. Mm-hmm. Dad pulls the curtain, nothing there. We think, okay, 
So just a spooky uh, vision. Then all of a sudden, Tommy is snatched backward into the darkness. Door slams, and we get these cuts back and forth where Austin's on the outside banging on the door. Tommy's inside getting thrashed, and we see uh, a quick glimpse of the thing that is thrashing him in there. And the only thing that we really get a good glimpse of are the gray eyes. The gray eyes. Austin finally breaks the door down. Uh, Dad's in there. And something's happened to his side. Mm-hmm. Right, they're looking at his uh, kind of below his ribs. Well, he got thrown into the mirror, and he got a cut on his on his head. So I don't think that Austin knows much about that the the ribs at this point more than trying to take care of the of the cut on the head. Yeah. Um, but it's at that point that they go, you know what? We got to burn this girl. Like this is they're, over. Yeah, they're realizing that everything went sideways when they brought in when the sheriff or whatever brought in this girl. So they decide they're going to cremate her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but why don't they take her to the crematorium? Well, they try to, but the door locks. Remember, the door shuts and locks on its own, and they can't get out. They get locked in the autopsy Yeah, they room. get locked in the autopsy room. That's right. And then they go, you know what? Screw it. Let's just burn her right here. Because they have flammable chemicals down there. Yeah. They douse the body. Dad has a pack of matches in his pocket. From a seedy motel. From a seedy motel. Just... Classic like action movie move, right? Yeah. Lots the whole pack, throws it on the body. Yeah. Well, he he smoked a cigarette earlier, so oh, that, that okay. does make sense that why he would have he the matches have now. Yeah. yeah, although it would have been a lot cooler if he had like a big lighter and just threw it on her. Yeah, you know. like a Nick Cage move. Or yeah, something. so flames burst out and consume the whole room. Yeah, the whole immediately room goes, goes up, up, sets the whole. Uh, ceiling of this room they're trapped in on fire. You were going, hey guys, maybe don't start a fire in a room you're trapped in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, just that seems like common Rule sense to me. Yeah. Rule of thumb. Uh, but maybe they didn't think that the entire room was going to be flammable. Maybe just the lady on the on the slab was going to be a yeah. thing that explode. I don't know. Unless she's going to burn within the context of the tray. But man, it gets out of hand quick. So right. the ceiling catches on fire. It burns up their... Autopsy photos, not the board they were nailed to, but it burns up the photos. Burns up the video camera where they were recording stuff. Burns up... Or so we're led to believe. Or so we're led to believe. Burns up the floor. And finally, Tommy gets the fire extinguisher and and takes care of all of this. And while he is putting out the fire in in the room, the fire slowly begins to smolder and die on Jane Doe. And we realize nothing's happened to her at all. Body's totally unaffected. Um, is it that point that they hear the elevator ding? Mm-hmm. Okay, so they hear the elevator ding out in the hallway. It's finally kicked back on. And and the door is mysteriously unlocked. Door's mysteriously unlocked now. So they run out to go get in the elevator. Um, door doesn't close, doesn't open all the way, doesn't close. You know what? We missed something. Um, when the door locks, uh, they Tommy grabs it, or excuse me, Austin grabs an axe and starts chopping at the door to try to get out. That's right. And that's where they see the lady with the mesothelioma. She's on the other side. We see her mouth. We see her mouth. And, and uh, earlier in the movie, her eyes have been, her eyelids have been shown shut, or sewn shut, shut, excuse me, and her mouth has been sewn shut as well. And so a uh, really great CGI moment here. Cause it, I mean, it looked it looked really good. Yeah. Um, her mouth opens. Like and, the strings are popping. Yeah. And stretching and stuff. And uh, and so that's when they go. That's when they decide. All right, screw it. We'll just burn her here. Yeah. If we can't burn her, wherever else we'll do. Yeah. And, so 
now that that door they can see through because of the hatchet mark. They hear the thing ding. They can get out of the. They hear. I say. I said what I just said here on a recorded podcast was they hear the thing ding. Not a high moment. That's okay. Um, they hear the elevator ding. Look out in the hallway. They think they can take a run for it, and they do. Um, where is there smoke? Is that yes? Yeah. Somehow through the no, that's that hasn't happened yet. I'm sorry. Okay. Um. So they they run to the elevator. They hit the button and the and they hear the bell again. And the door is like slowly opening or not opening all the way. Austin's trying to force it open. Dad takes the hatchet from him. Just small correction. He's trying to force them shut because the, because they're seeing something Didn't coming. Did he have to fight to get them open for them to get in though? And this is totally pointless. It doesn't matter. Right. What does matter is that he can't get the door to shut all yeah, the way. Yeah. They can't. They can't get the door shut. Uh, Tommy is frantically hitting the button trying to get the doors. Uh, trying to get the door shut and the elevator to go up. They continuously see through uh, <laughs> through the scary movie trope of the hanging lights mm-hmm. that come through. There's something there. And they hear the bell. And you can kind of make it out. You see the gray eyes and you think, okay, this is something. It's about to come get them. Austin has grabbed the axe. And in a moment of fatherly brazenness or braveness, Tommy grabs the axe from Austin and takes a wild swing at the creature at that the creature. mesothelioma woman we're thinking. Yeah. Who's come to life and about to come eat their faces. And hits one swing. They both go back into the elevator. And then all of a sudden we hear a teenage girl cough. Yeah, and I think she like says Austin's name. Maybe. I think so. Another scene in the movie that you called way before it happened that basically they were going to um, they were in a, in a hallucination, and that the thing that they stabbed that they thought was mesothelioma woman was going to turn out to be her uh, Austin's girlfriend. Yeah, absolutely was. She's laying on the ground outside the elevator, bleeding out, choking out her last moments here on Earth. And only a man that performs autopsies could have such a precise swing, right? Yeah, like, he, he just goes some kill business shot. with that one swing. Yeah. Drop the poor girl. Uh, this is not. Austin's finest hour. No, no, this was not. This is not where they needed him to go. What's this guy's name? Emil Hirsch. Emil Hirsch. This is not going to be on his reel. I hope not. Uh, looking for his next gig because it. I totally got out of the moment. Like Brian Cox handles it phenomenally. In in the sense of I'm trying to save my boy. But I just killed someone, and that this person means a lot to him. Slow realization yeah. is coming over me. But there, there, there's, there's a real. I mean, he just, he's a, he's really, really good in, in that scene. And Emil Hirsch, it, it, it here's a great analogy for you. Emil Hirsch is Rocky crying over Mickey in Rocky Three. But obviously, there's not that connection that the audience has yeah. with it. But it's just that same like. Rah, 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 rah. Wailing yeah. over the top, blubbering. Let's look. If my dad just killed my girlfriend after I thought she was going to be a scary monster who's coming to eat me, I'd be freaked out too. Sure. But it's, it just wasn't credible acting. No, it just, it, it just like, seemed like uh, uh, Orvidal was like, you need to cry more, cry more, cry harder. Or Emil felt like this is my time to show my range. Horrible Norwegian accent. I don't know. I don't know a lot of Norwegian people. Well, that could have been perfect. It might have been. Might Who have knows? Been perfect. When, when they get this in Norway, then we'll know what's happening. Then you'll know. Yeah. Probably also find out how to pronounce the name, right? Yeah, or, or rather, if we did or not. Yeah, I so many people, so many people be tweeting me like, "No, this is wrong. You're a stupid American. You're so wrong." That was my dad. That was more my dad than Norwegian. Yeah, I think you went Middle Eastern. I did. Um, so 
there's good acting, there's bad acting here. Emil, right, just like to, for me, there was good acting and there's bad acting. <laughs> he tried to seize the brass ring there. Not really what we need in the moment. Whatever. It's one of the small gripes I have about sure. anything in this movie. Yeah. Uh, we're back in the elevator. It's time for a father-son moment. Again, good acting. Yeah. Because neither one of them blames the other for what just happened. They both acknowledge we're in an altered reality. This played out by accident, right? There's no like, how could you? Or yeah, uh, any of that forced like drama. But then we get a little bit of the backstory with their family. Right. And it doesn't explicitly uh, say that. Um, Tommy's wife, Austin's mother, killed herself, but that's what they imply. Yeah, that he that didn't realize the pain she was carrying yeah, around. She's very, uh, seemed like she was very depressed. She was in pain constantly. Um, he says, you know, that if I would have known, I would have helped her. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tommy says that to Austin. Um, and again, that's another, uh, in the just doing research on the movie uh, between watching it and, and doing the podcast, that's another scene that the director was very proud of, he said. Which I can yeah. understand. Like it's the emotional crux crux of the movie, right. but it was a little too too long. Yeah, I think in my opinion, while Brian Cox was delivering his monologue, I told you that this makes me think of a soliloquy from like yeah, a Shakespeare play, definitely. sort of a, a Hamlet or something. You yeah, know, I was about to say it's very Hamlet esque. Uh, so cool again. No complaints, really. I mean, those are small quibbles. Uh, they decide that it's time to finish their business, though. They can't just sit here in the elevator waiting for. Uh, the Jane Doe spirit to come kill them. So they're back into the chop room, and they're going to... I guess the, their theory is that she doesn't want them to be digging around in her body, and so they need to go dig around in her body to figure out whatever she is trying to hide from them. They need to find the truth. Find the truth. And the truth they find next is pretty startling. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it kind of ties the whole movie together, really, because one of the things that uh, Tommy, Brian Cox, says in the beginning of the movie is that everybody has secrets. Yeah, that's and, true. And that doesn't, it's not everybody, it's everybody right. has secrets. And so this is, I mean, that we should have known that that was what they were setting up to begin with yeah. on that. And so now they're trying to figure out what this, what what's going on with this lady and why she keeps trying to throw things at them to keep them off the trail. Yeah, so there's and, clear agency here. They're yeah. assigning this dead body. And this is where the smoke comes in. Okay, so the crematorium uh, comes to life on its own. Yeah. We were making jokes about the cat coming back. Um, they go through the smoke towards the room, and they kind of get separated in the hallway within the smoke. Um, should have held hands. Yeah, should have had the buddy system. Should have had the buddy system. Dad gets brutalized. Yes. I thought he was getting cut. It sounded like he was, but then there's no visible. Uh, there's there's a cut on his shirt, on his t-shirt. Okay. There's a there's like a slice open, but there's uh, it was nothing. No blood. Yeah, there's nothing really bad. Yeah, but you you see him kind of get brutalized by these shadowy figures in the smoke. They finally get through that into the autopsy room, and he's he's basically okay. And this guy has seen some stuff, so he's not going to let this get in the way of him finishing this autopsy. And and that's another thing uh, to call back that we didn't talk about uh, when when the radio says you're not getting out. Uh, Austin looks at Tommy and goes, hey, Dad, maybe we should just finish this up in the morning. And Tommy looks at him very sternly and says, we started it. We have to finish it. Sure. And so this is this is a guy with a one track mind who thinks about his, you know, thinks about his profession, uh, takes pride in his work and has to finish this job. And he's going to now. So out comes the brain saw. Yeah. They peel back the flesh over the skull, exposing the bone. 
uh, saw it open, take a section of her brain, throw it in the microscope, and the big reveal happens. Yeah, which it's funny that Hannibal Lecter cut open somebody's brain uh, for all of you. Manhunter fans out there knowing that Brian Cox played Hannibal Lecter before Anthony Hopkins. Big reveal is she still has brain activity. Her cells are still active. Yeah. So she's alive. And do we do the Frankenstein over the top laugh on that? Won't we? <laughs> I guess we. Can. She's alive. Uh, we won't. That's okay. fine. We'll we'll have it mentally. Yeah. If you want to put it in there somewhere, you can. That's what we're yeah. So it turns out this chick's alive. She's trapped in her body. Um, Some serious force is keeping her alive. And Austin, the puzzle master, apparently, decides to start folding the uh, piece of cloth that was inside of her stomach and sees that it's not just Roman numerals and things. It spells out Leviticus. I didn't see Leviticus. I saw, like, black line, black line, black line. I barely saw saw Leviticus. But the Leviticus text references um, putting witches to death. It's uh, Leviticus 2027. Thank you, Leviticus 2027. That's that's my life verse. Yeah. Um, It was actually my senior quote. You had a better senior quote than I did. (laughs) So uh, they put two and two together. Derek the prophet uh, comes back into the picture. This is a young lady who was part of the mass hysteria in Salem, Massachusetts in the 17th century, right? They found one of the girls who was killed as a witch. Uh, the Roman the Roman numerals on the cloth actually read 1693, so I'm assuming that's the year that this all went down. Yeah. Um, so we put all this together. Tommy puts all this together. She was tortured uh, and sort of ritually murdered in order to not only end her life, but to sort of trap the evil that she had been accompanying with as a witch uh, and protect the community. They hauled her as far away as they could get from the community to bury her. But he hits on this theory that in performing this ritual on her to kind of trap the evil uh, within her and isolate it from the community, they actually turned her into the uh, nexus of dark energy that they were accusing her of being all along. They kind of created the monster. And honestly, what a clever origin story for, for a witch. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like these things these things weren't really going on. People were just crazy, but in their mass hysteria, they have committed some kind of ritual that has put this evil entity inside of this girl. Right. And now she's pissed off and she's taking it out. Hell bent on revenge. Yeah. So to answer their question earlier about why they hadn't you know, they're sitting in the elevator earlier, Austin asked Tommy, why hadn't she just killed us? Well, they feel like they know why. She's been tortured. She's been tormented. She has felt not only all the evils done to her uh, by the original people who executed her, but she's felt all these uh, wounds they've inflicted on her body as they're doing the autopsy. You so, think, do you think she's? You think she's Maggie? You're probably given. You're probably pulling a very good movie <laughs> into association with a very bad movie. You may be doing the cinematic version of what the Salem authorities did to this poor girl. Ooh, good call. Yeah, you're gonna make uh, a bad association here. Nobody wants any part of man. Or the dog gonna come at me with uh, put my own teeth in my stomach. Uh, let's hope not. I hope not. If he does, ask him for sure how to pronounce his name. <laughs> we need to know. Before he cuts my tongue Before out. he cuts your tongue yeah. out. If you can just handle that for us. Yeah. Um, so Tommy then decides, well, I need to kind of appeal to this thing because you would imagine a centuries-old uh, abused woman who's striking revenge through supernatural resources, she's going to be compassionate and willing to bargain. Obviously. Yeah. 
obviously she she's gonna have uh, she's gonna have a heart even though they cut it out sixty minutes before this happens. Yeah. So he asks her to take him mm-hmm. and not to harm Austin. Not to harm Austin. Um, and then he becomes a human voodoo doll. And at this time, uh, they hear either they hear a bell or the door begins to shake. One or the other. So Austin is on. Austin is at the door trying to keep these other evil spirits or these bodies out. Yeah, that's and right. Tommy, Tommy goes straight up to the witch and says, "Just take me. Mm-hmm. Just don't, don't do anything to my son. Just take me." Looks deep into her murky gray eyes, and then all the afflictions begin to fall on him. His ankles break. Yeah. His wrists break. What else happens? His- um, I mean, his lungs are blackened. Yeah, that's right. Um, he's just, I mean, he's just going through torture. Yeah, everything, everything that happened to her. Um, I think even with the tongue, but I'm not for sure. I mean, they don't, they don't show it. So he never really speaks after that. Well, he just says, please, please. That's right. Um, Uh, he drops to the floor. Austin's able to come to his side. Uh, his dad is in agony and is trying to grab for a knife for the scalpel, for a scalpel laying to his side. As, as this is going on, we see Jane Doe's body begin to heal and her eyes become unmurky. Yeah, so she has been laid open yeah. like a Thanksgiving turkey most of the last 45 minutes or whatever. Right. As Tommy's writhing in agony, though, her body's putting itself back together. Right. One of my favorite uh, horror movies, not because it's particularly scary, but it's just one I saw early on, uh, was a movie called Christine. Yeah. Uh, Stephen King's yeah. writing and John Carpenter directed it. Mm-hmm. It's about a haunted, I think, 58 or 56 Plymouth Fury that eventually is trashed by some young thugs. And one of the coolest still uh, special effects that I have seen that's practical effects uh, in any movie is the scene where the, the trashed car heals itself. Um, and there's a version of that thing playing out here with this body. So the blood is coming back up out of the drain into her the, I guess, skin is starting to re-seam where she was cut open. And like you said, her eyes unblur just as Tommy's grow murky. Mm-hmm. And um, Austin puts it all together. His dad's in agony, wants to die. And so, he says, please. Yeah, he says, please. His dad asks him, please. <laughs> the way I say that makes it sound like he was just like, hey, you're not doing anything. Just go ahead and end my life. But, really? I mean, he's he's in agony and he's, he's wanted to be over with. And so now, uh, of course, Austin does. Uh, we see that he stabs his father with the scalpel. Straight uh, to the heart. Yeah, precision. It's um, at that point he hears the voice of the sheriff. Yes. Yeah, so the lights come back on. The radio. Uh, the radio comes back on. Everything is pretty even kill. And then Austin hears Sheriff Burke saying, "I can't get the door open. Open up the door." And we hear like the sound of chainsaws. Yeah. So it sounds like they're cutting up the old sycamore, whatever that fell. Right. Um, Tommy runs up the stairs to open the door. Can't get it open. The voice of the sheriff tells him, "Open the door." Can't do it. Let us in. Or let me in. Yeah. Can't do it. So he's struggling with the door. It still won't open. And really, maybe the kind of creepiest moment in the movie. Definitely. Uh, the voice goes from open the door to sing the song about opening up and letting yeah. the sunshine in. So we realize there's no hope here. Yeah. Um, this is just another manipulation by Jane Doe. Um, and at that point, we hear the bell again. The bell so, rings again. Uh, the bell rings again down the stairs. Uh, Austin turns to look down the stairs, he doesn't see anything. He backs up to a balcony. Mm-hmm. He does, doesn't see anything, turns back around, and boom, 
Eddie Dearest. There's Tommy. And Tommy doesn't have his he doesn't does he not have his eyes? Something's going oh, on with his yeah, eyes. Yeah, something's going on with his eyes. We don't see him long. Right. Startles uh startles Austin. Austin goes backwards off of the off the stairs, off the balcony, and he's dead. Yeah, he's dead. Smash to the uh, sheriff and his officers on a very pretty day. Uh, radio host announces it's the fourth sunny day in a row. Make sure you pack your sunscreen. Yeah. So all the storm stuff was complete delusion. Um, they're loading bodies out. One of the female deputies says, it looks like, and I think we're supposed to infer that it looks like uh, Austin has killed his girlfriend, killed his dad, and then taken his own life or accidentally fell maybe. Either way, basically, Austin went unhinged and killed everybody and then died himself. I like the sheriff. The sheriff says, I've known this family for 20 years. Whatever it looks like isn't what happened. Yeah. He believes that uh, this family is too upright to have kind of experienced that. Sure. So he very wisely, again, not following like the um, sort of expected way where the people involved don't realize oh, the thing that's causing all the problems is the thing causing all the problems. Yeah, he's not carrying Moss and Bye Bye Man. <laughs> not at all, no. Thanks be to whatever powers control I'm just trying. I'm just trying to reference all the movies we've seen so far so everybody goes back and listens to those episodes as well. And they totally should. Yeah, definitely. Some of them are more entertaining than the movies we saw. So far, everyone except for... How dare you. Um, don't breathe. Don't right. breathe. And then I would say there's a second, maybe. You're wrong. Um... So, oh, he tells her to get the body out of his county. Yeah. Don't just take him to the next funeral yeah, home. Yeah, it sounds like she's got another another funeral home or something planned in the in the same county or area. Yeah, the female deputy. I'll yeah. just take her to this other funeral home. And he's home. like, nope, get it out of here. She's somebody else's problem now. Yeah, he sends her like off to a university. Yeah. So we get um interior shot of a van. Young man's driving the body across country to wherever it's going. He's talking on his Bluetooth to someone. Yes, yeah, his girlfriend or wife. Uh-huh. And the radio on the van... Open up your heart and let the sun shine in. Right, so Jane's presence is active again. We kind of pan down her body, and uh, as we, we linger on her face, and I really thought for a minute we may see the hint of a smile That's why raise the corners of her lips. That's not what happens. We continue to pan down to her toe. We see on her toe, not a bell, but a toe tag. Mm-hmm. Um, and how's the movie end, Derek? Her first movement of the entire movie. Her toe moves. We hear the sound of a bell. Cut to credits. Cut to credits. Um, we kind of sat, after the movie was over, we sat there for a moment. Uh-huh. Um, and I I did that because I felt like I had been on, been on quite a trip. Yeah. There were several moments in this movie where, I mean, this isn't my first rodeo. I have watched many a horror movie. I know sort of the moving down the hallway, scary noises, anticipation build, you know. I'm prepared for that, but I still felt moments of anxiety, very anxious, sort of um, on the edge of my seat, waiting to see what the reveal and the payoff would be. In a way that I haven't really felt that way with a movie in quite a long time. I can't remember the last time that I thought, I feel a genuine sense of trepidation for these characters. What was your experience like? Uh, I, I think about the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, re- I really enjoyed it. Uh, I thought that it was, I thought that it was really well done. Um, even, even though there were, there were things that I called or whatever, it was still, it was still a really enjoyable ride. Like last week, my biggest thing that I complained about was that I'd already kind of known the ending of, mm-hmm. of the movie. And, and, it, and I do think it kind of made it less enjoyable. Um, even predicting these things, being right on it, I was like, yeah, it's still really, it's still really good. 
And uh, there, there was that sense of dread. Like there were a few times, and, and it doesn't happen much for me anymore, uh, but there were a few times where I had that sense of dread of like, oh, what's what's about to happen? What's, what's going end? on? Yeah. Um, you know, and and the biggest one was at the end where, you know, he's like, open up the door, open up the door, open up your heart and let the sun shine in. And you go, holy crap, she's not going to let this kid go. Yeah, and I even feel like I had this kind of internal spider sense going yeah this is not going to end happily right there's going to be some kind of trick or rope-a-dope here yeah but just as it played out from the open the doors to the song uh, it still landed sure you know i felt i felt like uh, i had been caught up in it and there there were a couple jump scares that i mean you even said that like one of them got you and and uh it even kind of like the brian cox thing freaked me out at the end of it yeah um and I, I feel like that that doesn't happen much. Like on, Absolutely. On, on jump scare movies, you and I have both seen enough where we're like, oh, it's going to be a jump scare movie, and then you're ready for it. But You're almost insulted when it pays off. Yeah. You're like, oh, thanks. Like, yeah. I didn't see that coming. But here, I just didn't have that experience. Even like when they're looking through a hatchet mark in a door, mm-hmm. I know what's going to happen on the far side of that door right. at some point. But when I saw the stitch mouth woman standing there, and then she opens her mouth, you know, I wasn't going to lose control of my bodily functions, but it was a moment of being scared. Yeah. Uh, and, and kind of visually being gripped by this scary image. And, you know, they, they did a great job with you could have they could have made this movie extra gory. And that's kind of what I was afraid of going yes. into it, because yeah. I was like, man, if, if this movie is just like all blood and just like, let's, you know, let's let's do Saw. Mm-hmm. Or let's do some kind of torture porn type thing. The Evil Dead remake yeah. from a couple years ago. Good call on that too. Just just so much gore. Like too just over the top. Mm-hmm. Just too much. Um that that was the biggest thing I was afraid of. And they, they did it in a very I don't know if you could say tasteful, but they did it in a very realistic way. Yeah. There was blood, there yeah. was gore, but it wasn't It was what you needed. Buckets of carnage yeah. and chum, you know. Uh, yeah, that's really well said because that could have been a really strong detriment. I think neither one of us like a ton of gore, right? Buckets of blood. Uh, so yeah, that would have really ruined this movie. Let me ask you this: Do you think this is a ghost story or is this a haunted house? That's a really good question. I think it's a possession story. I think all three of those are viable candidates. Sure. The possessed person literally never moves a muscle. Yeah. I think about possession movies in the way that they're all about sort of uh, physical horror. So you think about The Exorcist, where the head turns. Mm-hmm. And, um, you think about, you know, one of my favorite horror movies is The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Mm-hmm. And there's a movie there where she has fallen asleep with a boyfriend in sort of a non-sexual way. And he wakes up, and she's on the floor in this contorted position yeah. looking back at him. I mean, that image still kind of freaks me out, right? So exorcism, or, or possession movies rather, are, are all about the body horror. Not this one. No. This body lays there cold and pasty the whole time. Uh, but of course, as we're talking about this, there's strong elements of a haunted house. Yeah. They're wandering down corridors. Sure. And that uh, And then there's ghosts. Yeah. So there's nothing in this movie that redefines the genre. Mm-mm. Don't you... Before, just in conversation, you were asking me, do I like um, that movie It Follows from, I think, two years ago? Mm-hmm. I did like It Follows because it was a concept that I hadn't really seen in the movie before. I have seen every concept in this movie before. Sure. Seen a witch, seen possession, seen haunted houses, seen zombies. That. Zombies. Every bit of that's new. But it's packaged and delivered in a really fresh way. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I don't know what else to say except 
doff of the cap to what's his name? Orvidal. Orvidal. Andre Orvidal. Yeah, he he delivered on something that could have felt repackaged, warmed over, tried, seen it all before, and I came away going, "This is a really fresh movie." Yeah. Uh, that I'm really glad I took the time to watch. Yeah. You know, he uh, I, reading up before uh, you know when we decided we were going to do this movie, I was reading up on stuff today and saw that uh, Orvidal got the desire to make a horror movie after watching The Conjuring. Oh, really? Yeah. The first Conjuring. The first Conjuring. Yeah. That's a franchise I have really enjoyed. Oh, man. I have liked what they've done pretty consistently with that. I'm not really high on this new, like, Annabelle movie. No, yeah. It was the weak link of the three. Yeah. But The Conjuring and The Conjuring 2 were both very solid. Yeah. Uh, I said this new Annabelle movie is... You're right. There wasn't a standalone Annabelle mm-hmm. that wasn't as good. But isn't there a new movie? Yeah, there's, they're, they're coming out with another one. Yeah, that trailer didn't really no, it's not, it, impress yeah. me either. Uh, that's the one I was referencing there. So, hey, if good inspires good, more power to them. Yeah, man. absolutely. Mr. Overdahl, watch the good scary movies and keep, yeah. keep it coming. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, man, I really don't – you know, the only thing – and we talked about it before. The only thing that I have as a negative in this movie was Emil Hirsch. Um, yeah, that one just, scene. Yeah, just that one scene. Uh, and there were just a couple. There was a couple times towards the end of the movie after that happens where he just he goes too intense. You know, like his eyes are all bugged out. And of course, I'm, my girlfriend's never been killed by my father, so I don't know the sure. emotions that would have through that. Sure. But it just seems like again, it's one of those things where it's like more Emil, more. Or he's thinking, I got to go way over the top on this thing. Up and, to eleven, baby. Yeah, and if he just would have pulled it back a little bit more, I think it would have been great. Uh, but that's that's nitpicky. That yeah. I'm with you. Like, I'm not saying you're nitpicky so much as, like, well, you really got to stretch hard to find a real criticism that's yeah. legitimate here. Yeah. And even when you kind of land on one, you go, eh, in the context of all the horror movies I've seen that are terrible, I'll take this all day long, you know? Yeah. So, uh, Derek, anything else you want to say about The Diary of Jane Doe? Uh, man, uh... The Diary of Jane Doe. I'm, gosh, my music history is bleeding over. How about anything else you want to say on the autopsy of Jane Doe? Uh... You know, I, shout out to Miss Kelly for her performance where they contort her body, and I mean, she looks like a she looks like a model. You know, she looks like she's not. I mean, she looks dead the entire movie. Yeah, great and, body control. And if she's there, like if that's her the entire movie, man, that's that's amazing. Pretty and you impressive. know, I was telling you before we started, uh, one of the reasons that they picked her was because she's she's big into yoga, so she can control her breathing, she can control her body. Um, yeah, man. Just um, unbelievable to her that. Yeah, um, it's weird to say that about like she laid still. Yeah, but there, that's supernatural laying still. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, when, when when you know when you're being uh, when you're having to play pretend that someone is opening up your body, you know, and it's just it's a real it's a very muted performance. But even still, like with her facial expressions, mm-hmm. even though she's not expressing she is expressing it's it's a really weird yeah. just go i mean go out of your way to see that yeah pay attention to her yeah if you're gonna watch this after listening to us let that rewatch and focus on her as she yeah because i mean there's there's several times in the movie where i'm thinking oh, okay this is where she's gonna do something this is where she's gonna blink or this is where she's gonna smile or this is where she's gonna talk Twitch. yeah even even at the end of it where um you know brian cox's character is absorbing all of her pain and she's being revitalized well, there was like two or three times where I kept saying, well, this is about the time she's going to hop off that, that slab and be like, bid you boys adieu and just, you know, walk her naked self out of there and grab a pilgrim outfit and just head back to where she came from. And that never happens. Never happens. Yeah. And, and it's almost it's, it's almost um, a joyous payoff 
at the end of it to finally see her move. Yeah. The, the thing you've been anticipating all along, you think, well, no, they're not going to give you any bit of that. It's that little toe wiggle yeah. is, uh, is enough to send you home going, okay, cool. So, Derek, tonight, did we see something scary? Absolutely, we did. Yeah, I'm going to recommend this to people. Yeah. Yeah, for the first time in five episodes, we saw something scary. Saw something scary. I, uh, I mean, there was there was some uh, tension in Don't Breathe. Definitely. I had my opinions about Split that you did not share. You're completely wrong. But this is the first solid land that we've had. Yeah, and, and I wouldn't, I mean, with Don't Breathe and with uh, Split, I, I would think that they're more thrillers mm-hmm. and not necessarily right. scary movies. This is a scary movie. This is a scary movie. This is the kind of thing that if you want to have your girlfriend snuggle up to you, you know, on a date or whatever, this this movie's going to deliver Just on keep that. her away from your dad. Keep her away from your dad. He sharp objects. Yeah. Dads and girlfriends don't go well to, don't go well together here. So, all right, man. Well, hey. Great. We found... Yeah, we finally found something scary. Found something scary. Uh, now, so that, I, that's the end of the podcast. We're, we're never doing another one? We're done. Uh, the one frustration that we didn't talk about is, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. We're going to wrap up, but it makes me angry that Incarnate got a wide release, and the autopsy of Jane Doe hit like the four biggest population centers in America, and then was shunted off to streaming and yeah. home video. It's a, it's a shame. Yeah. This movie is... Leagues better. Yeah, think think miss. think about the drivel that we've seen in theaters. We saw the Bye Bye Man in theaters. Oh my gosh. We yeah. saw Incarnate in theaters. A split was a decent movie. But yeah, so we saw Incarnate. We saw the Bye Bye Man. And even you and I, before we even started the podcast, saw the newest Blair Witch. Yeah. Which is nowhere as good as this movie. If you took the best elements of all three of those, they wouldn't be as good of a movie as this. Agreed. Now, I th- in fairness, there is no actor in any of those movies we just mentioned other than Aaron Eckhart, who you would say is comparable to Brian Cox. But Andre, whatever his name Orbidal. is. Orbidal. Orbidal sure did get a whole lot more out of his talent than whatever the guy's name is with Incarnate. I've tried to block it out of my head. Yeah. So. Well done. You guys uh, need to go see this movie if you've not seen it. Definitely. Yeah, go get it on. Is it on Is it on streaming stuff? I yeah, know it's, it's on, on like, Amazon. Amazon. And I think you can get it on YouTube okay. as well. I think I saw it. It's all about like six bucks. It's on YouTube? I think it's one of the That's really cool. things you can pay YouTube. So I'm sure it's on iTunes as well then. Probably. By that point, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah go out of your way. Uh, again, if you've listened to this podcast and you haven't seen it, shame on you because you really should have went and seen the movie first. Uh, we don't say that about every movie that we review. No, I mean, a lot of what we've done is try to spare people from having to go see bad movies. Exactly. In this one, we just kind of want to talk through yeah. a really good, scary movie. Yeah, it was a, it was really well done. Um, I, you know, Normally, I like to do numbers as like if it made money and stuff like that, but I, I couldn't find anything on their budget or anything on, um, on any kind of money that it made because I guess it was in such a limited release yeah. that, that it wasn't anything. But this is the kind of movie that... If you're a horror movie fan, you want to go see. Yeah, this is exactly why I keep watching horror movies and keep reading lists of obscure movies I've never heard before. Because I want to find one like this. And thankfully, every now and then, you're able to do so. Um, I get now why, even having come out, I believe, in December, this made the list that I saw of best of 2006 horror movies. Um, can't say enough good things. Yeah. Don't watch it. Get scared. You know, and man, it... Uh, it it's 85 minutes long. Sure. Quick 80, watch. 86 minutes long. So, it's, I mean, it's not like you're going to you know, ruin your day 
watching it or anything. Um, it knows it knows what it's supposed to do. It gets in. It tells a decent story. It sets it up. You get scares. You get a, you get a good backstory or you get a good uh, reveal in it. Yeah. And then they they go out and and you're done. Absolutely. I mean, last week we watched Split, and Split was two hours and something. Sure. You know, like bang for buck. Even as somebody who really likes Split, bang for buck. This is the heavier. Absolutely. Hitter. Yeah. Know, this, um, yeah. So uh, so yeah. To that end, uh, Mr. Orvidal, thank you so much for making this movie. Uh, it's it's nice to actually have. It's nice to actually be able to come on here and say, hey, we actually saw something scary. We saw we saw a good movie. Uh, let's talk about the exorcism of Emily Rose. Yeah, man, that's a favorite of mine. We talked yeah. about that a long time, uh, long time prior on this podcast. I'm glad we got a chance to check it out again. Gave me an excuse to buy the Blu-ray. Had the special edition DVD for years. Glad to upgrade that. Uh, I asked you before we started watching it if you were familiar with the story of the young girl that the that the story is based on. Right. Um, you had said that you weren't super familiar, and I was weighing whether or not listeners would know or not know. So, in the uh, event that any of you listening here aren't super familiar with the story behind uh, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, let me give it to you as quickly as I possibly can. If you are familiar, maybe hit the forward skip button a couple times on your podcast. Uh, The Exorcism of Emily Rose is based on the story of a 20-year-old German girl named Annalise Mikhail. That's how I'm going to say that. I'm probably butchering it. Who lived in a small town uh, known as Klingenberg in Germany. Annalise was, by all accounts, a loving and sweet girl, pretty uh, in an unassuming way. I think in pictures, she kind of bears a slight resemblance to Nev Campbell. She suffered her first uh, of several seizures. That's actually spot on. I saw a picture of her. Yeah, that's a really good... Thank you. That's my superpower. Likenesses. Right. No, it was great. Um, She started having seizures around 1969 when she was about 16. Uh, She was then diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. By 1970, she'd had her third major seizure. She was prescribed Dilantin, a drug similar also. Uh, she was given that was similar to uh, chlorpromazine. And neither of those nor subsequent treatment in a psychiatric hospital alleviated her symptoms. And by 1973, she was experiencing bouts of severe, uh, excuse me, severe depression, suicidal thoughts as well. And soon after, she became intolerant of religious objects in her presence. So between 1973 and 1975, This tragic young lady began to tell her family that she was in the torment of demons, eventually concluding that she was possessed. Uh, During that time, Mikhail ripped the clothes off her body, performed up to 400 squats a day. They do some of that in the movie. They have Carpenter going, doing up-downs. Crawled under a table and barked like a dog for two days. Holy smokes. Ate spiders and coal, bit the head off a dead bird, and at one point licked her own urine off the floor. Ugh. Uh, Annalise and her family, they were deeply religious, and so they requested an exorcism. The Bishop of Würzburg, talking about the Catholic uh, Church here, granted authorization, and under priests Ernst Alt and Arnold Renz, they performed, get this, Derek, 67 exorcism rites within the first half of 1976. Holy smokes, man. Some of those procedures lasted up to four hours. Um and one of the reasons this case is so famous, uh, they recorded 42 of these on a tape recorder. Wow. And the sessions are, to say the least, deeply disturbing. Not only did this young lady speak with a hissing, growling voice, but she thrashed about. Uh, she also, according to the people involved, evidenced 
strength beyond what you'd expect from her slight frame. She claimed to be possessed by six specific demons. This is also shows up in the movie. Judas Iscariot, Lucifer, Hitler, Fleischman, Nero, and Cain. Uh, that fourth one there, Valentin Fleischmann, is particularly notable. He was a Frankish Catholic priest from 1572 to 1575, and he was defrocked uh, on the charge of drunkenness, but has been alleged, uh, he was alleged to have been uh, guilty of assault, fornication, and murder. And so while it's possible that Annalise learned of Fleischmann during her religious studies, there's no direct record of her encountering that story. And those who believe that she was, in fact, possessed point to this as evidence that her possession was legitimate because it's knowledge that she had no access to. Uh, Eventually, though, as this goes on, she began talking about dying to atone for the wayward youth of her day, uh, as well as the apostate priests of the modern Catholic Church and stopped eating. Uh, She had been receiving treatment for epilepsy, but at the same time that this is going on with her talking about dying, um, medical consultation was ended, and she eventually succumbed to starvation and dehydration in 1976. Mm. Two years later, her parents, Anna and Joseph, were put on trial, along with the priests, uh, for her murder. Germany is a particularly secular nation, and you can imagine that the trial, which basically contested the existence of demons in the supernatural realm that would entail, created quite a stir. All of the accused were found guilty of negligent homicide for allowing Annalise to starve. They were given suspended six-month prison sentences, as well as three years probation. The real sad thing is that the court concluded that Annalise's life could have been saved as late as one week prior to her death. Oh, wow. If they had started force-feeding her. Man. Uh, Joseph died in 1999. Based on articles from around the time the movie was released, uh, Anna still lived in the house where Annalise died. Uh, Miss Michael, I'm sorry, Miss Mikhail had no desire to ever see the film based on her daughter's suffering told a reporter with Britain's Telegraph. In reference to her daughter's exorcism, I don't regret it. There was no other way. I know what we did was the right thing because I saw the sign of Christ in her hands. She was bearing stigmata. And that was a sign from God that we should exorcise the demons. She died to save other lost souls to atone for their sins. And Elise's last words were, Mother, I am afraid. She was laid to rest following her death, exhumed, though, in 1978. so her family could replace her cheap wooden coffin, or allegedly acting on a message received from a Carmelite nun from southern Bavaria, uh, who told the Michaels, Michaels that she'd had a vision that her daughter's body, excuse me, that their daughter's body was still intact. That's one of the things that's present in sort of religious um, iconography, mm-hmm. that a holy person's body would not be subject to decay. So they dug her up. Uh, official reports state that the body showed signs consistent with normal deterioration. And today her remains lie within sight of the home in which she lived and died beneath a wooden cross bearing her name. The inscription there says, Resting with God. And her grave has become a frequent destination for religious pilgrims. Hmm. Really, truly, deeply, no matter what you read on what the cause was, just a horrible tragedy. Yeah, man. Sucks. Yeah, it really it really is. Um, you, can go, you can go on uh, her Wikipedia page as well. And read, uh, I'm sure read a lot of what you what you have, but um, it also goes into a little more detail. And man, it's just it's heartbreaking. Yeah, with um, with it being fairly modern, there's a lot not just the audio tapes. There's a lot of pictures, yeah. and the pictures of her are just ghastly. Not, I mean, not even from the question of just um, whatever supernatural issues may be involved, but 
um, that the human body was subjected to starvation, dehydration, uh, that would leave you looking like that. Yeah. So it's um, yeah, it's 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 crazy. It's crazy to think that stuff like that is actually a real thing. Yeah, you know? I mean, it's happening in Germany. This is not out in the backwaters right. of some third world country where um, I don't know what you call it. Just yeah, very unsophisticated religious thinking is taking place. I mean, Germany's among the most developed countries in the world. Yeah. But you can see why that makes for a great fodder for a horror movie. Sure, absolutely. And uh, they did a wonderful job with sticking to a lot of the really good points that are, you know that are made in this you know in this story, but then also embellishing it for Hollywood. Yeah, and bringing it into America. Yeah, yeah so it's more uh, contemporary. Yeah. Now, did you know that there's actually three movies that are that have been made about uh, about uh, Annalise? The second that I'm aware of is called Requiem. Yeah. And that's from like 2006. Yeah. The, hey, oh, go ahead. Have you ever seen it? I have not. I watched it after I saw this movie for the first time. And I remember thinking that it was very um, boring. Mm-hmm. I know they were trying to tell a more faithful story. They, they minimize a lot of the supernatural elements, but I just, my memories of that movie are a, a girl in a wool sweater sitting in a, in a room looking out a window a lot. Okay. Interesting. Uh, the third, uh, the third movie was made, um, called Annalise, the exorcist tapes. Oh, and it's a, it's a 2011 documentary style horror film directed by a person named Jude Gerard Prest. Uh, obviously it's based on Annalise's uh, life. Uh, it's Wikipedia says that it's, it is also a mockbuster. Okay. Um, which I'm not familiar with that term. You know, that term, I think that's, um, I can't remember. There's a there's a film company that tends to do these kind of movies. They take whatever the the big blockbuster is. They do a, a carbon copy of it and change some small elements. So like when Paranormal Activity was going on, mm-hmm. they released Paranormal Entity. Okay. And I man, I, somebody out there is going to hear this and go, "Dummy, you're talking about." I think it's the some kind of brothers. The, okay. Um. Uh. Well, I um. Interestingly enough. This is also sometimes called Paranormal Entity Three: The Exorcist. Tapes. Yeah, so it's a it's a monkbuster. Oh, it's distributed by the Asylum. Okay. Yeah, I've watched a lot of those. Okay. Just because I watch a lot of horror movies, I've not seen that one. Yeah. But I've watched a lot of Asylum. So um, yeah, I mean, it's it sounds like there's not much to it, but anyway, it's interesting to know. It's like like when you know those two movies came out back to back about the Bell Witch. Yeah, it's the same deal. Um, the asylum's really good for making a, a, a knockoff of whatever it is that's big in the theater. You know what, dude? I'm looking on the Google image search for this. I think I have seen this. Yeah. I'm betting I picked this up at Redbox sometime and like watched it while I did other stuff in the office. I'm betting so because I, I, there's a, uh, a, a relative of mine who looks like the actress. And I remember thinking, this is what this relative would look like if she was possessed. <laughs> So, uh, that's how I remember that movie now. Obviously, it didn't leave enough impact on me to actually recognize the title. You know you watch too many horror movies when you're like, I bet Cousin Susie would look like this if she was possessed. Yeah, man, that's me. Yeah. Hey, man, I'm right there with you. Uh, so, let's see. This movie was directed by Scott Derrickson. Love Scott Derrickson. Scott Derrickson's great. His, uh, I guess the biggest thing that he's done lately is Doctor Strange. Sure. Before that, Sinister. Yep. Um, did you and I go watch his uh, Deliver Us From Evil? Did you and I go watch that? I watched that with a friend of mine in the theater. 
Hey, and there's there's a good possibility that we did. Yep. Um, but I, I can't remember it off the top of my head. Sure. He's done another one called Devil's Knot. Have you seen Devil's Knot from 2013? I have not. It's got Reese Witherspoon in it. It's about these boys who, it's actually set in Memphis. I think it's based on a true story. Uh, these boys are accused of kidnapping and killing some much younger children. And I just found out it's on Netflix. And I really like Scott Derrickson's work, so I'm going to watch The Devil's Knot. Cool. I'll put it up on uh, social media what I think about it. Um, we did not see uh, Deliver Us From Evil in the theaters together because I remember watching that with uh, members of my family. Oh, yeah. That was Eric Bana, Joel yeah. McHale. Yeah. 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 Um, but I thought it was a decent movie. Yeah, it was, it was tolerable. Yeah. Not his best work. No, definitely not. Tolerable. Um, this movie stars Laura Linney, Tom Wilkinson, and, of course, uh, Jennifer Carpenter as the uh, aforementioned Emily Rose. Uh, it's, this is kind of a – I don't know, man. I, I watched it tonight for the first time in probably three or four years. And in my opinion – and you, you're going to argue with me on this, and that's okay. It doesn't hold up. Oh, you think not? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, the story is really good and stuff, but there's there's a couple times with the effects, and I remember I told oh, you yeah. I was like, dude, that's really 2005, 2006, and um, I guess I'm kind of desensitized. It's weird that like we can watch Halloween that was done in the 70s, and I'm all in on that, but watching a movie like this, I'm like, eh, I yeah. don't know. When uh, you try to do more special effects uh, and less practical effects, that tends to date your stuff. Yeah, you know? and so um, it's still still a good movie. I uh, still would, would recommend it, but it's it's one of those movies where I was I would watch it and then be like, oh okay, and then check my phone for something. So yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, but I can't expect much from somebody who loves uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> so Laura Linney, uh, I need to know where she's at. I need yeah. to know what's going on with her. I I kind of forgot about her till I saw her pop up on the screen yeah. and you and I are immediately like where has she been but you said she's working she yeah she seems like she's consistently doing stuff if you pull up her IMDB page or even her filmography on uh, Wikipedia oh, oh okay she was she was in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows <laughs> she okay. was in Sully I saw Sully I saw Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh I don't want to admit that I guess I can't take that off she's in a <laughs> I have kids. She's in a... There it is. That's your <laughs> She's in a movie called Nocturnal Animals uh, that came out oh, last year. yeah. I, and, and had a, a little bit of publicity and, and press behind it. I wasn't aware of that movie till I guess it hit Redbox. Yeah. And so I'm going to watch that one at some point. Yeah. It's got Gyllenhaal and uh -huh. Amy Adams. Amy Adams, Adams. yeah. Yeah, it looks pretty good. Uh, she was in a movie with uh, Ian McKellen called Mr. Holmes, where he was Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, that's a great... Uh, Sherlock Holmes movie that if you haven't watched and you're a fan of the character, you should really get it. Okay. Old Sherlock Holmes starting to deal with a little bit of dementia. Oh, nice. Really interesting take on the character. Okay. Um, yeah, so she's, I mean, let's see. This movie came out in 2005. She has something for every year since then, but it's just, it's, it's things that I personally haven't seen. Well, apparently I've seen her a couple of times. I've seen a couple of those and just... Forgot about her. She is at the top of her game, I think, in this movie. Yeah. The critics weren't overly kind to this movie, rightly or wrongly. But almost without exception, even the most negative uh, critics said, hey, Laura Linney's uh, really the bright spot in this cast. And she is. Yeah. She's, she she really does a is. really great job of yeah. conveying an emotionally torn career woman who becomes convinced that she's defending a good man. Uh, so the biggest thing that Laura Lenny has done over the last what 
11 years is a, is a television show for Showtime called The Big C. Uh, where I oh, guess, about cancer? I guess, yeah, I guess she was the t- uh, the title character. I heard about that and didn't watch it. Yeah, I I honestly hadn't heard anything about it until right now. And she was also in that John Adams miniseries with uh, Paul Giamatti. Jeez, I watched that too, I, and I recommend that to people. So. She was she was Abigail. Abigail Adams. I apparently cannot see uh-huh. Laura Lee when she's on the screen. <laughs> I just have a filter for her. <laughs> or she's just that good of an actress that she becomes that character and you forget that Laura Lenny. That that's it. That's yeah. it. So we'll we'll edit out what you said and we'll just keep we'll keep my my brilliance. That's my true. broken brilliance. Uh, delete, delete, delete everything before that. <laughs> a lot of the reviews that I saw uh say that Tom Wilkinson is kind of the weak link. Yeah, I saw the same thing. Um I would sort of agree with that. Do you really? Yeah. I don't think there's anything different in any of the other roles I've seen him play. If anything, like in the um, the Batman film, which one was he in? He was in uh, Batman Begins. Batman Begins. I kind of felt like he was hamming it up there. Yeah. This seems much more subtle and understated. I feel like this is a pretty powerful performance. I, I disagree. Yeah. I, I feel like it's real wooden, uh, especially when he's on the when he's on the. Tr- oh, on the I stand. think him on the stand is some of the most compelling stuff he's done. I don't. Yeah, when he's reading. Um, when he's reading Emily's letter, and then when he's having sort of this moment of being berated by the prosecuting attorney, trying to keep his cool without blowing, um, and I guess his credibility on the state yeah. uh, on the stand, I just thought, man, that's really good acting. I don't, I don't think it's like um, Oscar worthy, sure, but I just don't see the criticism. Yeah. Oh, I think I think when you're looking at Laura Linney, who balances. Um, the dark and the light in this movie really well. And also, for that matter, Jennifer Carpenter, who has a phenomenal performance. Um, he's just a little more... Out of the three, he's the weak link in this. And, it, and it's probably it's probably direction and it's probably written material that's causing that. But I just it's not his best performance, in my opinion. He's also playing a priest on... Yeah. You know, like in, in prison. Yeah. I guess if you say Laura Linney, Jennifer Carpenter, and him, somebody's got to be third. Right. Okay, sure, he's third. Right. I just don't feel like he's mailing it in. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I don't either, but there's obviously a disconnect between those two performances and his. That's that's what I'm saying. Okay. So, that's fine. Disagree with me all you want to. I mean, you like being wrong. Clearly, you're a Fast and the Furious fan. Um, scoreboard. Check the box office. <laughs> All I see is Dwayne Johnson. That's the only thing. Well, hey, yeah, but that's, that up. that's in their favor, right? They brought in Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, they were smart to do it. Exactly. Go see Baywatch. Yeah, I don't think I did that. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Peter Parker's dad being in this movie. Let's talk about Peter Parker's dad's mustache being in this movie. Yeah, and how big of a D-bag he is. Well, I mean, the mustache is consistent with his characterization. All he needed to do was start twirling it during that last monologue where he's trying to convince the jury. I think if he tried to twirl it, it would have bit him. <laughs> he is big and bushy and so angry. <laughs> it was actually the demon possessing Emily Rose. It has a cameo yeah. in the uh, credits crawl at the end. I don't know if you noticed that. I did it said played by itself. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. I did hear that it had a line that was deleted in the deleted scenes. But you got to find a guilty. And they're like, oh, okay, the mustache says so. I think it was just so it could get into the Screen Actors Guild, <laughs> get benefits. Oh. Jennifer Carpenter. Oh, Scott Campbell's mustache. We miss you. Let's yeah. talk about Jennifer Carpenter. Uh, I mean, she's the only one we need to be talking about. 25 really. years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, had been doing theater up to this point. Mm-hmm. Was recommended by Laura Liddy for this part. 
And you said when she uh, she came in for her uh, audition, was hired on the spot. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, she said there is a uh, there's a thing that she said that uh, she spent hours and hours in a room full of mirrors trying to contort her face and and her body into different positions to see what was the scariest one. Uh, they said that um, as soon as she went in, it was so convincing and scary that the director decided, okay, you're the perfect person for this. Um, which go, which knowing what I know about auditions very rarely happens. Yeah. Um, most of the time you're sitting around people who look exactly like you, <coughs> excuse me. And you're, um, <coughs> well, <coughs> I get real choked up when I talk about auditions cause I've never landed a part. Um, <laughs> so anyway, you, it's a very stressful time, and for her to not have much, uh, not have much stage prep, like not much screen time, not much um, familiarity with with movies and how they run and stuff like that, for her to be able to go in and just nail this audition, that says a lot about her. Sure, um, she's clearly. You and I've talked about Dexter before. She's clearly, in my opinion, the the rock when it comes to Dexter, and not not Dwayne Johnson, but like the the moral conscience of that show. Absolutely. Um, and it just shows you again, like how good of an actor she is to be the moral compass on a show where the serial killer is supposed to be the guy we're rooting for. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was, um, she was as central to that story, at least as Dexter was, mm-hmm. uh, always playing the yin to his yang and living in the tension of that. Uh, I don't know when we get to the end of this thing if you and I will say we saw something scary tonight. But where this movie is scary, if it is, is in her physicality. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, physicality extending to her vocal mm-hmm. use. You know, um read one of the interviews with her, maybe on a movie web from a release time. And they specifically asked her about what did you do, you know, with your voice. And she went to her... I think high school. She was Juilliard trained, mm-hmm. but she went back to like her high school acting coach or singing coach to to like get vocal exercises so she wouldn't lose her voice while yeah. she was doing it. Um, she's a lean actress, very angular features, and there's something about the angularity of her body that lends itself really well to this performance. And and the fact they didn't use any special effects with her, yeah, and she's just contorting herself into those positions, making those noises. Uh, that's a that's a range that it really is hard for me to get my mind around. She, I think that they had to use a harness for one scene, mm. but besides that, it was it was all her, all her. which is amazing. Um, they said that the silent scream that she does um, helped her win the part. Really? Yeah. Said so that uh, Scott Derrickson found that absolutely terrifying in the audition process, and that was one of the things where he's like, "Oh, okay, we got to have this girl." Um, I'll tell you this about that movie for me. It lasted in my nightmares for months after I watched this. I watched this in the theater. I told you when it came up, there's a scene about halfway through the movie where a boy she's close to at college finds her kind of freaking out in the uh, chapel. He brings her home. He falls asleep on the bed next to her. He wakes up and she's on the floor staring up at him from a contorted position. And uh, that that specific image robbed me of probably a hundred hours worth of sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, going back to it, it's not quite as frightening now. Having said that, I haven't tried to go to sleep yet. But right. uh, that thing in and of itself is, in terms of impact, one of the scariest scenes in my life. 
just like I just based on what it happened, you know, what happened to me after I first saw it. Yeah. Um, there's a really cool trip piece of trivia on IMDb that says that there were two dolls constructed mm-hmm. uh, for the film. Uh, the first one was where Emily Rose would lock her limbs. And the other one was during the dorm scene where she's in the floor in the twisted position that like you're talking about. The director ultimately never used the doll in the dorm room scene because he th- he found out that Jennifer Carpenter is incredibly flexible and decided that the positions that she was able to contort herself into on the floor were more unsettling than anything that could be accomplished with the dummy. I agree completely. Yeah. But, I mean, when you think about that, it's just – it's unreal to me that that, that – t- I mean, it's the most terrifying part of the entire movie. Sure. Was done with with just Jennifer a Carpenter. human body, yeah, doing that. It's it's unreal. That is such a good way to approach this role, since the story hinges on: is this a supernatural event, or is this a product of basically haywire brain chemistry or mental illness? You know mm-hmm. that everything she does is in the range of human flexibility. Uh, really drives home the central. Uh, question of this film. So that's a nice added bonus. Yeah. I was blown away by the idea that they use no special effects with her. I was blown away by what she could do with her voice and the screeching and the howling and whatnot. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to know what to say about that kind of performance. I think it's probably award worthy, but that, that this is just not the kind of movie and really the kind of genre that ever wins those kind of awards. Yeah, definitely not. Um, which is, uh, disappointing. Yeah, because yeah, that was that's one of those one in a million. She did win an MTV Movie Award for it, yeah. so she didn't go home empty-handed. Okay, that's the uh, that's the level of award show you can expect to get some kind of recognition from. Yeah, that's a shame. I was about to say, isn't that sad that like you have to go the, and, and no disrespect to the MTV Movie Awards. No, I loved them when I was a kid. Um, but it's not your peers recognizing you. Exactly. That's it's really disappointing that you you have to go to to something where the fans have to vote you. And before you get any kind of recognition, which still is, is wonderful. Having fans that'll vote for stuff like that is great. But, you know, like you said, you want that recognition from your peers. She um, also said that she had never seen The Exorcist when she came to this role. Really? That's kind of surprising to me. That's really cool. Um, so here's, here's an interesting fact for you. The jury was not given scripts, so they weren't aware of how the case would turn out. Uh, Mary Beth Hurt, who, if I'm not mistaken, plays the judge, and it um, asked them how they would find Father Moore, and it was a split decision. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. Well, in real life, that's not how it played out. That poor, those two priests got uh, got the book thrown at them. Yeah, yeah. Let's well, let's talk. Let's break it down on the central question of this movie because the central question of this movie basically is: is demonic possession real? What do you think, Derek? I think that it is. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, do you want to hear the preacher talk about? Yeah, this? I mean. I know that we don't really dive into that, that aspect of your life a lot, but um, it was something I wanted to talk to you about in Incarnate, but it was more of a scientific approach to it when we did yeah. Incarnate. This is more of a spiritual, religious type for it, so I'd love to hear love to hear your breakdown on it. Yeah, I'm always hesitant to kind of go there because I don't know how much people, if they're not religious, want to hear. Right. But uh, I am uh, a member of the historic Christian faith. Uh, I'm Protestant. I'm not Catholic, so there's important differences between what I believe and what the people in this film and even the real-life people who experience these events uh, dealt with. I try not to be uh, irrational. I try not to be contra-rational in my faith because I think rationality basically exists because there's a rational God who's creator. With that in mind, I was telling you before we started recording that uh, Luke, one of the authors of the Gospels in the New Testament, um, he was trained as a physician. 
And his gospel is really interesting because he's recording Jesus's um, ministry. And we think he's probably doing it by talking to eyewitnesses and coming back and recording what they saw. There are times when he describes the same set of symptoms. And at one point, he'll attribute that to some sort of medical condition. At another point, he attributes that to demonic possession. And I think that's probably how I look at the world, that demonic possessions of potential and it would manifest itself in physical traits, but that we don't want to be too quick to just run to the boy's got a demon. Sure. You, you know, the medical arts are there for a purpose. Uh, Luke was probably the Apostle Paul's traveling physician. And so I think there's models in the Christian faith historically to say, yeah, yeah, we need to not see a demon behind every bush uh, as quick as I possibly can. My sense of demonic possession is if the biblical narrative's right, there's a finite number of fallen supernatural beings uh, known as demons, former angels. So um, that means that I really do believe in a world where unseen hostile intelligences who are very powerful are out to get me. That's enough to make you paranoid. Yeah. Um, but if they are present in the way the uh, biblical meta narrative gives us and they do make use of possession, I think it's probably for the purpose of doing kind of what you would assume, inspiring fear, creating uh, fascination with just basically uh, their ability to terrorize. And I think that that is probably more useful in a less um, technologically and medically advanced society. And I was telling you, if someone comes up with symptoms, we would sort of attribute to demonic possession based on the um, stereotype. Mm -hmm. We treat that as mental illness. And at in the most extreme cases, if therapy doesn't help, they're basically institutionalized. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of scare power in that we, we sort of move those people out of the public eye. So I would be suspicious that most of what you and I would encounter here um, is mental illness that needs yeah. to be treated medically. I think if we were to go to less developed nations, uh, tribal religion areas, things like that, it's entirely possible that some of what's going on there is supernatural in origin. Sure. So, I don't know. It, I'd love to hear what our listeners think about this. Yeah, I don't absolutely. expect everybody to agree with me, but that's my two cents as, as a Christian guy watching a movie that was dealing with Christian themes on yeah. the subject of demons. I think the the really cool thing about this movie is is that it doesn't give you a, a, a right or wrong. It presents both sides of the narrative, and it does it in a way where you can go – you can make your own decision. It's your choose-your-own-adventure book. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and Derrickson does a really good job with it. He said that he, he co-wrote this, and I, I don't remember the gentleman's name that he co-wrote it with, but he said that Scott Derrickson considers himself a Christian and a believer, and he said that his co-writer was, I don't know if he said atheist or agnostic. I think he said skeptic. I read the same interview. Yeah. And, um, and so he said that it, it helped them really well with that. And uh, Derrickson himself also said that he can relate to Scott Campbell, the attorney, his character really well being a Christian, but also wanting to present this argument of, okay, yeah, there's a God, but here's the medical proof that you killed this girl. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he, I feel like I can do the same. You know, I, I read that story and I think, could we have not given her intervenous food? Sure. You know, could we not give this girl some calories? Yeah. Do you, do you think that, I mean, and, and of course this is, um, this isn't the actual you know, girl, but in the movie, do you feel like that the family was presented as this, I don't want to say crazy Christian, but that might be the only way to do it to where they they may have been more at fault than Father Moore was? Does that make sense? Yeah, we live in a world where you just 
so often, far too often, you hear these people who are like, we're not going to take our child into the doctor because we'll pray it away. And every time that happens, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. And so I think these people are presented in that vein, although in fairness, uh, in the movie, there's a doctor present. And in the original story, medical professionals were involved. She was institutionalized, uh, trying to get psychiatric help. Yeah. Um, you know, really, the sticking point for me is this is a this is a girl who's not well, right? But it seems pretty clear from multiple sources I read that she herself declined medical treatment. You know, you get all kinds of ethics there. Do you look at her and say she's not in her right mind? We have to do what's in her best interest anyway, or do you say the patient gets to determine the course of care? Sure. I mean, that's a tough place to be in. I yeah. imagine if I'm a medical professional, so it's it just sucks. I mean, yeah. I know that that's not very sophisticated, but it just sucks so bad that stuff like this plays out, and you you're you're caught between honoring someone's wishes and doing what could very well save their lives and improve the quality of their life. Right. Um, you you mentioned Derrickson and his faith. I I think one of the reasons this film is interesting to me is because they're pushing into they're, they're pushing into questions that go beyond. Did this freak you out? Mm-hmm. Right. So a couple of the most interesting interviews I read with the people involved were from Christianity Today. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So um, in one with Derrickson, this is what he says about the film. This film is about presenting cogent arguments for two very different perspectives on this girl's condition and her story. And I tried to have those articulated very well throughout the film. The goal is, again, not to provide any metaphysical answers for the audience but to leave them asking themselves, what do they believe about this particular girl's case? What do they believe about the larger questions that her case proposes? The demons exist. Is there a spiritual realm? How does God play into all this? Uh, Or, excuse me, into all that? Is there a devil? And therefore, is there a God? Questions like that. And I don't think that anyone can watch this movie without asking themselves what they believe. Uh, Some of those questions are literally in the mouths of Laura Linney as she's giving uh, the defense for the priest. That comes through loud and clear. I appreciate that. I think not just because I'm a confessing Christian who does believe in the supernatural, but I think it's an interesting question because when you look at sociological data, it it seems like a vast majority of Westerners still believe in something that we would call supernatural, Mm -hmm. whether that's, you know, karma, something like that. So many people still practice prayer. Um, I, I like that about horror. Yeah. Horror gets to raise some of those questions. And uh, it's not just, is there a God? Is there the devil? But, you know, we saw him get out. What does racism look like in a society that's aware, generally speaking, that overt racism is a bad thing? You know, how does it keep popping its head up? Sure. When certain groups of people, large groups, are at least on the lookout for it. Uh, I think horror also lets us ask science is bringing all these great benefits into our lives. Could science ever betray us? And you know, release a zombie plague or whatever. I'm I'm interested in horror because it raises good questions. Yeah, uh, especially this especially this movie. You know, um, like I said, I mean, I, I hate to be redundant, but it just it it does such a great job of drawing that line between well, here's argument A and here's argument B, and you choose whichever one you want. Um, and I could definitely see like I could definitely see both sides of the spectrum. You know, I think both times. Yeah, both times that I've watched this movie, I lean more towards the spiritual side. But I could easily see, you know, um, with with uh, seeing mental illness in my family, I could definitely see 
you or know, epilepsy, which yeah, is not I mean, mental epilepsy, illness. It's exactly. just physical illness. Right. Yeah. Um, I could see it going down that path as well. Um, so, you know, I, I love, I love uh, scary movies that will pose those questions to you. And it's not like, here's a jump scare. Here's a jump scare. Here's a jump scare. It's, hey, these are issues that are going on in our lives every day. Sure. It may not be something that you and I see on a day-to-day basis, but it is going on in the world. And we need to ask these questions we need to we need to make this this film that, that asks these questions so that you can open your minds to other realms of possibilities. Yeah, give you another way to raise the question, give you new insight on it. Yeah. Um, so I told you I saw those interesting interviews, plural, in Christianity Today. There was one they did with Carpenter. I wonder if you don't mind, I'll just run you through a few sure, of these. Absolutely. She went through that same process. So they the interviewer asks, What are some of the questions this movie brings up? Did it bring up questions for you in making this movie? She replies, It did. I think it asks you to look at your own beliefs. Your beliefs in religion, your beliefs in science, your beliefs in the judicial system. It causes you to ask how much room you've left for new information, new possibilities. I thought I had answers to all those questions before I started working on this film. And then I realized whether, uh, excuse me, whatever answers I come up with aren't relevant. Whatever people come up with belongs to them and it's their business, not mine. So the interview follows up. That brings me to another question. Campbell Scott, who was another actor in this film, he was asked if his spiritual beliefs changed as a result of working on something this intense. And he said, yes, to a degree. What about you? What, Carpenter? I think I've put a lot of pressure on myself at times to find a name for what it is that I feel spiritually. And if anything, this has uh, sort of taken that pressure off. Part of my spirituality is that I'm acting with good intentions and with honesty. The rest should take care of itself. And so, yes, it changed me. Uh, Last one. I read a quote from you where you said you tried not to let your own point of view get in the way of your performance. Now that you're done, what's your point of view? Do you believe this stuff is real? Carpenter. I think that we're all kind of the sitting jury when it comes to this movie. That's exactly right. We sit in the jury box on this movie. And just because I was there when it was being pierced together didn't make me any more of an authority on the subject. Or when it was being pieced together didn't make me more of an authority. So I did try to come to it uh, in a neutral state, not have any opinions one way or another as to how I think the trial should be handled. Which I think kind of helped in telling the story. Um, So she's wrestling with that as she's making the film. Yeah. The next question I'm not going to read to you, but she does say in the answer to it, yeah, I came to a conclusion about what I think happened, but I really want to. I really want to leave that to the to the watcher, to the the audience member, sure. to come to their conclusions. And I, I mean, they got a lot of criticism for being too preachy from this. Maybe I'm biased, but I came away thinking, yeah, there's there's literally a scene shot saying demon, and the same events are shot saying epilepsy. Yeah. Make your own mind up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the question that I want to pose to our listeners, and they can they can get at us on our social media yeah. channels, our subreddit, and all that stuff. Let us know which way you you swing on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you do you agree that Father Moore is innocent, or do you think that um, this was just epilepsy and that they needed to do more to treat her medically than they did? Um, I'd be interested to what they think about films who try to push us to ask questions about absolutely things like this. Yeah. You know, do you do, is that what you want from a movie, or do you come away feeling propagandized? Yeah, you know, um, I'm I'm curious about those things. Yeah, and I feel like that uh, a couple you and I were talking about it before we came on. A couple of the reviewers felt that way that it was more of a religious propaganda film than what it truly is. Um, I don't I don't think that it sways. I don't think that it should sway anybody's opinion towards the religious aspects. 
more so than it does to the medical or scientific aspects. Yeah, I mean, there's that scene where she goes to like talk to the Virgin Mary or whatever, but we never see. Yeah, Virgin that's what Mary. I was just about to say. Virgin Mary's not even. It's not like Alanis Morissette is dressed up as the Virgin Mary talking to Emily Rose. Yeah. So uh, I do think the movie thinks it's important to ask the question, and I guess really just based on looking at world history, I think humans think it's important to ask the question and answer it. However, your uh, best conclusions lead you. But, you know, the God question is one that's there. Um, it seems like for most everybody at some point in their life. So it's it's pretty clear Derrickson wants to put that question in front of you and ask you sure. to deal with it. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think he succeeded. Yeah. I think so, too. Um, I think that it's it's kind of crazy that this movie only has a 45% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Um, which classifies it as a rotten movie. Um, I, I would give it. Uh, I know on IMDb, I think it's got like a six seven. Hmm. I'd probably, I'd probably go seven. Yeah. On on it. Um. I, I yeah. I think it's a really good movie. It's 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 clever. It, it's not reinventing the wheel and its premise or anything of that. But it but it asks questions. And it's also not trying to just be a clone of The Exorcist. Right. You know. There have been, since this movie came out, there have been scores of exorcism movies. Yeah. But it was sort of on the front of that wave. And there's a movie called The Last Exorcism. Did you ever see that? I did, yeah. I think The Last Exorcism does a lot of cloning of The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Okay. But Emily Rose is clearly not trying to clone The Exorcist. And I respect it in that regard. Yeah. That it says we're not going to go to a rotating head scene. We're not going to have... Pea soup. We're going to have an actress doing things that the human body can do. Uh, pretty, pretty brave choice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I thought it was great. Uh, I loved the uh, purple lighting to foreshadow some evil issues about to happen. I, yeah. So, just real quick, tell our listeners what you're talking about. So, um, anytime that there was a ghost or a demonic force that was about to be present, you would see a purple light, usually shining through a window. Or uh, I know that when I, I noticed it the first time I noticed it was when Emily was walking by the couple with the umbrella and there was a purple haze that kind of followed them and uh, their faces distorted. Yeah, and then their yeah. faces distorted and turned uh, turn, uh, demonic. And then after that, I think it may have been the second or third time I went, yo, why does it keep? I, I called it pink at the time because it, it had a pur- pinkish purple hue to it. Um, but I, th- I thought it was really cool that that kind of gives you, you know, I always look for stuff like that in movies, like those, you know, those types of things. So I thought it was really cool that like you almost have an Easter egg of, oh, something's about to happen. Um, yeah, that's good. Uh, that's good cinematography. Mm-hmm. And I know you're going to think this is crazy, but I am, Shyamalan right? did that intentionally with the Sixth Sense. Yeah, with Red. With Red. Yeah. And he said that. You know, he felt like he was actually giving the ending away by doing mm-hmm. it so heavily. This is the first time I was aware of that um, method. On that point, though, did you notice when in the heat of the trial, when things look the worst for Lenny, that the the jerk legal partner in her firm who comes to kind of tell her, get out of this quick mm-hmm. or you're going to be fired. When he comes through the door behind him is a purple window mm-hmm. pane. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting looking at that from the idea that Derrickson says purple equal, e- equals something evil. Yeah. You know? Yeah. All right, man. So, I guess I'll ask the question. Sure. Did we see something scary? Yeah. I think so. Um, just just on that scene alone, we're talking about um, where she's contorted in the floor looking up at the dude when he wakes up. Uh, dude, if, if any girl that I was cuddling with in the middle of the night 
I wake up and she's in the middle of the floor looking at me like that, it's game over. Yeah, there's a scene where Emily gets up from the bed and runs and jumps out her window. That would have been my response were I the young man who wakes up to find yeah, her in the call. floor like that. Yeah. It would have been a cartoon, kind of like uh, Kool-Aid Man or, you know, when like Goofy ran, runs <laughs> oh, through the wall yeah. and there's an outline of him. Yeah. That would have been Jeff Wright. Definitely. So, same thing for you? Saw something scary? Yeah, I saw something scary. I think I saw a pretty good film. I'm with you. Six to seven is probably what I'd rate it. Yeah. Um, and I'll always like this movie because it was one of the first movies that I can remember telling me um, – there's a big question here you ought to chew on Mm -hmm. and I appreciate that yeah yeah I uh, definitely I I love a movie that'll make me think and entertain me at the same time yeah I think it did that uh, yeah so definitely didn't get a dumpster fire well guys as we mentioned we're reviewing The Exorcist here in this episode and we watched the extended director's cut we did indeed so this is a longer one I think you said it had like 10 more minutes of footage in it uh, yeah I believe so I believe that's that's what it all boiled down to um, hang on just one second Walbert I, yeah come on in here buddy it's fine don't be scared we turn the TV off oh. what no spoiler alert all right. I think this is also the same edition that if you get the Blu-ray release that says the version you've never seen before, I think it's the same one. Okay. Just FYI, for those who are interested in such things like this, I think the extended director's cut is much more like the novel than the version I saw the first you know, 10 times I watched this movie that's more common. So what I noticed is that we get more time in Iraq with Father Marin at the beginning. Near and dear to my heart. There's also much more time in the McNeil household early on as well. It, this edition has the spider walk scene included, but... I don't think I've seen this before. The spider walk ends with a shot of Reagan's blood-filled mouth. Yeah. I think I remember just watching her spider walk, and that was how it was ended, even when I saw it as a deleted scene. I was about to say that was a deleted scene. Yeah. And then um, this may, one of our listeners might be able to tell me on this. There's an interview with a psychiatrist early on where Reagan is starting to manifest the personality of the demon for for like the first time, really pronouncedly. And at some point in that interview, her face changes to a demonic face, like they overlay it a demonic face over her and it's right before she grabs the psychiatrist and assaults him I don't remember that. The the last thing I don't remember seeing that's in this one is there's this early interview with Kinderman and Father Karras, and it looked like that was a longer interview. I know it's in the novel, and it foreshadows the head-spinning scene that's so famous in this movie. Right. So, anyway, that's the edition we're watching. Um, where do you want to get started here, Derek? Well, first off, this is your favorite scary movie, correct? Yeah, I have been inconsistent with that. Um, Halloween's up there, too. Mm-hmm. So, the way I've started thinking through it is that Halloween's my favorite slasher. Okay. And The Exorcist is is my favorite horror movie. It's still the scariest movie I've ever seen and it's a really good movie. So it's hard to say like The Exorcist is one of your favorite movies. Right. But The Exorcist is one of my favorite movies. It has a it has a real unique power too. I've seen this 12, 13, wouldn't surprise me if it was 15, but wow. I know I'm in double digits. Yeah. Every time when I go to bed that night, I'm a little creeped out yeah. and like a little frightened. I mean, I'm 36 years old at this point. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen The Exorcist about 167 times and it keeps getting funnier every single time so Really? That's a Beetlejuice one. Oh, I had no idea. I've yeah. seen Beetlejuice twice. So oh, okay. Maybe I'm not as familiar. I've seen Beetlejuice about 167 <laughs> times. I've probably seen The Exorcist, in all honesty, maybe three times in my entire life. Okay. This being the third. This was my go-to when I was a kid for a couple different things. One, to just scare people with. Mm. And two, stuff we've talked about on the podcast. Like, whoever I'm dating at the moment, if she's willing to watch it with me, it's a good chance to get her to cuddle up on me. Yeah. Right. So, I've seen it a lot. Yeah, I wasn't allowed to watch this movie. This was the one movie that my mother was like, never bring this into the house. 
house. I'm not surprised by that. I think we'll get into this more, that the intentions with this movie were fairly wholesome, but the reaction blew people's minds. Yeah. Uh, Billy Graham, the evangelist, said that there was evil in the fabric of this movie. And like, I mean, you and I grew up in the same evangelical church. I'm sure that our parent, our parents rather, not air parents, our parents, would have followed Billy's lead and drawn the same conclusion if, even if they never heard that. If I could get a pair of air parents, though, that would be really fun. <laughs> Man, this is sometimes that Southern accent is yeah, I understand. hard to climb over. I completely understand. I try to I try to muffle it as much as possible, but I still, sometimes I'll listen to this podcast and I'll be like, oh, come on, dude. Why do you sound like you're from Lick Skillet, Alabama? Well, because we're from Lick Skillet, Tennessee. Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so, so the evangelist Billy Graham had that to say about it. Do you know what superstar Billy Graham had to say about it? <laughs> no, I don't know what superstar Billy Graham had to say about it. He said he could take that demon head on. <laughs> That's funny. I'm, uh, That's funny. Funny jokes. I'm just trying to keep the mood light just in case something happens. Yeah. Jeff and I are... So, so we're banking on the idea that if a demon wants to invade this recording, <laughs> they're also going to be marks. Exactly. And they're going to be like, oh yeah, let's talk about old school wrestling. <laughs> let's, talk about, let's talk about the XFL. <laughs> so, let's start with the creators of the film. Oh, great. William Peter Blatty is a writer. He started his career writing comedic novels. With a name like that, you got to go comedic. Or terrifying. Yeah. It's weird to me that a guy who started off with comedy sensibilities ends up writing a movie that basically destroyed the first group of people who watched it. Look, man, uh, I have no right to make fun of anyone's name, but you should just go by William Blatty because Peter Blatty is too close to pee-pee. Like, are you hearing like pee-pee bladder when you're hearing yeah. that name? Okay, okay. He should have been a urologist with that name. Maybe he went to do The Exorcist to like back people off from thinking he was somebody to make fun of right with that name. That could be it. Like, oh yeah, let me tell you what lives in my head. <laughs> <laughs> you sure you want to mess with this? You better fear Peter Blatty. So in 71, he switches to The Exorcist. It remained on the New York Times bestseller list for 57 weeks. Holy smokes, man. He won all the awards for his adaptation of the novel into a screenplay, so he As well carried he her right into the into the cinematic world. He ended up having later success with another one of his novels he adapted into a film called The Ninth Configuration, and I have never seen nor heard tale of that movie. Yeah, nah, yeah neither have I. Uh, the, the director here is William Friedkin. I guess everybody knows that. Stanley Kubrick turned the film down. There were several other notable directors, but he was the one that I think is like lastingly relevant. Yeah. Eventually, Friedkin took it up. He had done The French Connection. You ever seen that one? No, I haven't. It's on like the, you know, if you, if you find somebody who has a list of best movies ever, usually The French Connection's on there. So this guy places pretty highly, I guess, historically. Okay. That was an interesting approach that comes through in the movie. Um, he was very physical with his actors. So he put them <laughs> in harnesses and like snapped them around physically. Yeah. This is from Wikipedia. I'm just going to read it at length. After asking Father William O'Malley if he trusted him and being told yes, Friedkin slapped him hard across the face before a take to generate a deeply solemn reaction that they actually used in the film where Father Dyer is reading the last rites to Damien Karras. That, of course, offended many Catholic crew members on the set. He fired blanks from a gun without warning on the set to elicit shock from Jason Miller. He told Miller, who I should have mentioned plays Damien Karras, that the pea soup that was about to hit him would hit him in the chest rather than the face. And uh, when it hit him in the face, it gave him an authentic, disgusted reaction. And then lastly, he had Reagan's bedroom set. Uh, he built it inside of a freezer so the actor's breath could be visible on camera. And it required the camera to wear parkas and other cold weather gear. So not only is this movie horrifying, but if you're an actor on the set or like part of the crew, it's a horror show just yeah. showing up to work, man. Yeah, this guy is a masochist. Yeah, no kidding. You familiar with the background on this movie? Somewhat, but go through it. Okay, so this is 
in some ways based on a true story. In 1940s, there was this kid that we I don't think we've ever found out his real name. He's referred to as Roland Doe or Robbie Mannheim, and uh, he was a Maryland resident, 14 years old. Apparently, according to the story anyway, fell victim to demonic possession by playing with a Ouija board. Sound familiar? Another reason why I never got a Ouija board. Yeah. Mom's like, no exorcist, no Ouija board. So when I was a kid and I went to a 4-H camp, there was a kid who brought a Ouija board. I can neither confirm nor deny that I was a jerk, and then we ended up taking the Ouija board from him. Okay. Threw it in the fire. Didn't burn. Imagine some middle school kids freaked out. Uh, I think he went home with it. I'm assuming that means that Milton Bradley built it out of fire-resistant material, maybe for just such a purpose, but it worked. Yeah. Anyway, so he allegedly gets possessed by a demon playing with a Ouija board. He ends up at Georgetown, and his exorcism is recorded by Raymond Bishop, who was the attending priest. Here's some backstory on that. So, according to writer Thomas B. Allen, after Roland's Aunt Harriet died, she was a spiritualist. The family started experiencing strange noises, furniture moving on its own accord, ordinary objects flying or levitating when the boy was nearby. The family first turned to their Lutheran pastor, who was interested in parapsychology. He arranged for the boy to spend a night in his home, I guess to observe him, and this guy named J.B. Ryan showed up, who was a parapsychologist. He was wanting to witness whatever effects might happen, and he says that at the uh, Lutheran pastor's house, he saw household objects and other furniture seemingly moving by themselves. The priest's name was Schultz, and Ryan said he had initially wondered if Schultz had exaggerated some of the facts, but I guess he saw it for himself. Schultz then kicked him up the ecclesiological ladder, I guess, and said, Lutheran's got nothing for you. Go see the Catholic priests. So according to the story, the boy underwent a number of exorcism, uh, exorcisms. Edward Hughes, Roman Catholic priest, conducted an exorcism on Roland at Georgetown, which, you know, is a Jesuit institution. So during the exorcism, the boy, again, allegedly slipped out of his restraints, broke a bed spring from under the mattress, used it as a weapon, slashing a priest's arm, had to halt the exorcism ritual at that point. Then the family traveled to St. Louis. So Derek, pretty close to where... <laughs> Fantastic. You're putting down roots for the next year. Good. Uh, there is where Raymond Bishop got involved. He called in William S. Bowdern, who was an associate of College Church. Together, both priests visited Roland and the relative's home, where they saw again shaking beds, flying objects, the boy speaking in a guttural voice, and exhibiting an aversion to anything sacred. Bowdern was granted permission from the Archbishop to perform another exorcism. I turned the page. Here I am on the road. Eventually, they end up at the Alexian Brothers Hospital in South St. Louis, Missouri, which was later destroyed. Okay, good, because I was going to say, I'm never going to that. Right. Uh, before they tried it again, they brought in another priest, Walter Halloran. They needed a young priest and an old priest. <laughs> uh, but I guess they they were in the psychiatric wing of the hospital. He was going to call, he was going to come in to assist Bowdern. William, William Van Rue, a third Jesuit priest, was also there to assist. Uh, to assist. Halloran stated that during the scene, such words as evil and hell, along with other various marks, appeared on the teenager's body. Allegedly, during the litany of the saints portion of the exorcism ritual, the boy's mattress began to shake. Moreover, Roland broke Halloran's nose during the process. Halloran told a reporter that after the rite was over, the boy, though, was healed and went on to lead a rather ordinary life. How crazy, man. That is crazy. But this stuff was all in the newspapers. The reason that Blatty knew about it is because major newspapers were carrying stories of it. How wild is that? That's insane. Like, an exorcism becomes part of pop culture there in the 50s or 60s whenever it was playing out. Yeah. I just, I don't picture that happening today. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, on one hand, you wouldn't imagine that it would, but on the other hand, could you not see like somebody, some voyeuristic website or something trying to go up for this? Yeah, I can't. I just can't imagine like the St. Louis Dispatch or the oh, New York yeah, Times yeah, yeah. being like, oh yeah, this will this will go in air, whatever, in right. air. I did it again. This will go in our Sunday evening edition. Yeah. Although, having said that, I guess Friedkin is about to release a documentary he made of an actual exorcism taking place. So this stuff may be more on the margins, but it's out there. That's insane. And that guy, I think we 
said it on a horror reporter back in the day, but that guy needs some hobbies, man. Yeah. Let's get him into board games or something. Yeah, he needs more hobbies because the hobby he has right now is terrifying. Yes. I don't think you should go around at cocktail parties and be like, well, what do you do with your spare time, man? I interact with evil spirits in film. You want to play with this Ouija board, I guess? You're not going to make new connections. That way. <laughs> I've got a Ouija board on my app for my phone. It's awesome. If you listen to our episode on The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which is another favorite movie of mine, you might have heard me do this already, but I figure since I am a pastor, uh, I'll give comment on my perspective on these things. Yeah, let's well, let's talk. Let's break it down on the central question of this movie because the central question of this movie basically is: Is demonic possession real? What do you think, Derek? I think that it is. Yeah, I'm with you. Do you want to hear the preacher talk about? Yeah, this? I mean, I know that we don't really dive into that that aspect of your life a lot, but um, it was something I wanted to talk to you about in Incarnate. But it was more of a scientific approach to it when we did yeah. Incarnate. This is more of a spiritual, religious type for it. So I'd love to hear love to hear your breakdown on it. Yeah, I'm always hesitant to kind of go there because I don't know how much people, if they're not religious, want to hear. Right. But uh, I am a member of the historic Christian faith. Uh, I'm Protestant. I'm not Catholic, so there's important differences between what I believe and what the people in this film and even the real-life people who experience these events uh, dealt with. I try not to be uh, irrational. I try not to be contra-rational in my faith because I think rationality basically exists because there's a rational God who's creator. With that in mind, I was telling you before we started recording that uh, Luke, one of the authors of the Gospels in the New Testament. Um, He was trained as a physician. And his Gospel is really interesting because he's recording Jesus's um, ministry. And we think he's probably doing it by talking to eyewitnesses and coming back and recording what they saw. There are times when he describes the same set of symptoms. And at one point, he'll attribute that to some sort of medical condition. At another point, he attributes that to demonic possession. And I think that's probably how I look at the world. That demonic possession's a potential, and it would manifest itself in physical traits, but that we don't want to be too quick to just run to, the boy's got a demon. Sure. You, you know, the medical arts are there for a purpose. Uh, Luke was probably the Apostle Paul's traveling physician. And so I think there's models in the Christian faith historically to say, yeah, yeah, we need to not see a demon behind every bush uh, as quick as I possibly can. My sense of demonic possession is if the biblical narrative's right, there's a finite number of fallen supernatural beings uh, known as demons, former angels. So um, that means that I really do believe in a world where unseen hostile intelligences who are very powerful are out to get me. That's enough to make you paranoid. Yeah. Um, but if they are present in the way the uh, biblical meta narrative gives us and they do make use of possession, I think it's probably for the purpose of doing kind of what you would assume, inspiring fear, creating uh, uh, fascination with just basically uh, their ability to terrorize. And I think that that is probably more useful in a less um, technologically and medically advanced society. And I was telling you, if someone comes up with symptoms we would sort of attribute to demonic possession based on the um, stereotype, mm-hmm. we treat that as mental illness. And at in the most extreme cases, if therapy doesn't help, they're basically institutionalized. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of scare power in that we we sort of move those people out of the public eye. So I would be suspicious that most of what you and I would encounter here um, is mental illness that needs to be treated medically. I think if we were to go to less developed nations, uh, tribal religion areas, things like that, it's entirely possible that some of what's going on there is supernatural in origin. Sure. So, I don't know. I'd love to hear what our listeners think about this. I don't expect everybody to agree with me, but that's my two cents as, as a Christian guy watching a movie that was dealing with Christian themes on the subject of demons. 
Yeah, so yeah, I think there might be something to this stuff. I don't think everything that comes down the pike and says, hey, demon is demonic. Sure. But I also think that sometimes a skeptical age may be looking over something that's rooted in a supernatural you know, place of origin. So anyway, that's all the supernatural stuff from this movie. Let's talk about the actors here. Well, uh, before before we do that, oh, okay. yeah, um, sure. I was like I said, I was going to say this for off air, but since we kind of have gone to that supernatural realm now, why do you think it's just, it's so many Catholics that have like, I've never heard of, of like a Protestant having a possession. It's always usually the the bigger ones are you hear it from like the Catholic Church and you always see that in the movies like it's always a Catholic that's that's had it done is there a particular reason behind that like well the Catholics have have rituals uh-huh. that are part of their authority structure okay so they changed I think in 2000 they got a new exorcism ritual you can go look this stuff online you can find copies of it the old Roman ritual for exorcism is what like movies like this are based on yeah. and then I think they titled the new one like an exorcism ritual for the millennium or something like that okay so it's just ingrained in them that they kind of have to say, you know, Catholics throw nothing away. If if some church council or a pope said it ex cathedra, it's always something they have to affirm and deal with, right? Okay. Protestants have it a little bit easier where I think we can be a little bit more self-critical and say our highest authority is scripture rightly interpreted. So we have this mechanism of self-correction that allows us to be like, oh, that was crazy. Let's get rid of that, you know, and also makes it easier for us to downplay stuff that's more embarrassing in an age where that becomes the case. Okay. And I'm not saying that to our credit. I'm just saying that's kind of the mechanism where we can, we don't have to go back and account for something a Pope said in 1702. Sure. Okay. I mean, that makes sense to me. So having said that though, it tends to be in Protestant circles that Pentecostal and charismatic denominations are much more engaged in this kind of work. Okay. There, there is, I don't know, probably five guys I know throughout the course of my life who said they've either attended an exorcism or performed an exorcism or had some kind of first person encounter with an exorcism and all but one of them is part of a Pentecostal denomination. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Do you know the name Mark Driscoll? Yeah. Okay, so Mark Driscoll, he, when he was at the height of his powers, you know, he had a lot of content available online and he talks very openly about confronting demons and stuff in in his own ministry. He's not exactly Pentecostal, charismatic, but he's just an example of somebody who at one point had some prominence but he talked very openly about, you know, he would be like, I had a conversation with a demon and the job is to make it tell you its name because that gives you power over it. I mean, he was very specific about what he experienced. I'm not saying I give any credence to that or that I think all of it's bunk. My position's somewhere in the middle. Right. But yeah, there, there's some of that stuff in Protestant circles. But I think the fact that Rome has a ritual for it mm-hmm. and it's the ritual is theatrical, right? There's got to be vestments and holy water and people can like hold the text of what the exorcist will do that lends itself to being recorded in a movie or a TV sure. show. Okay. That's fair. My two cents on it. It's probably not worth that much. Now, when you say vestments, do you mean like Roman Reigns, what he wears? <sighs> Not quite. Okay. Not quite. Did I take it too far? No. All right. Good. All right. Cool, man. Yeah. I appreciate you you laying that out for me. Yeah. It was. Problem. It's yeah. It's just always been something that I've been kind of curious about. I don't know if we've ever talked about it off air before or not. I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, the actors though is what I had up next. You yeah. Cool, over there. Yeah. 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 So Ellen Burstyn, who plays Reagan's mom, she's an actress here. Uh, she suffered for the film. Yeah. Right? She did. She hurt her tailbone when she was snapped back in a harness. I think when like Reagan smacks her. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's when it is. And apparently they used her, the scream of pain that came out of her when she got hurt yeah. in the film. The only thing that I'm really going to comment on her performance is she does seem to noticeably age during the film. Yeah. She looks like what you would think a woman who's under this tremendous stress and can't get away from it would look like as she went along. Yeah. And I don't know if like that's just naturally what happened to Ellen Burstyn while this was going on or if it was like a, a makeup choice. If it's an actual choice by the production company or by the movie or the director or Ellen herself, that's a fantastic thing because uh, I mean that was one of the things that I said to you while we were watching it uh, the other 
other day. That's I was, right. I was like, holy smokes, man. She looks like she just ages 10 years during this movie. Yeah. Some of the stuff I know is makeup. Like when, when Reagan does backhand her, she keeps a bruise on her face sure. that goes away noticeably, you know, bit by bit throughout the rest of the movie. When they're driving away from Georgetown, you can see just the faintest outline of like yeah. a purple or green spot. So on some level, it's makeup. I don't know how much of it. Right. But I guess also if you had your tailbone broke, you might feel like you aged a little. Yeah, for sure, man. I, I just would, as an actor, as a performer, I would never want to work for somebody like freaking. I mean, yeah, that's that's true. But I wonder, and you can answer this, if if you get a sense, this guy has already put up one of the best movies ever. And this is coming from one of the most popular novels ever. Like If you go into this thing all the way, you might come out as like basically an exorcist where, an exorcist film where it's one of the best ever. And it's one of the best, you know, it may be the best in its genre. Yeah. Does that incentivize you to say, all right, let's just tape it up and let's go? No. Really? Like if, if, if somebody came to me, if a director came to me and said, do you trust me? And I said, yes, and he slapped me, I'd punch him in the face. Like <laughs> trust broken in your nose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing for the gun, right? And I, I believe the, um, was, was it Jason Miller? I believe, you know, he shoots it behind Jason Miller's head and Miller goes, I don't need you to do this for me to elicit the reaction that you're wanting. I'm an actor. This is what I'm trained to do. The, uh, the gentleman that played, uh, what's his, what, I'm sorry, what's his name again? The guy that gave the last rights to. Yeah, the, the character I think is Dyer, Father Dyer, but I can't yeah. remember the actor's name. He, but the, well, the actor's actually a priest. Oh, is he? He's okay. a legit priest. So he, he didn't, I, as far as I know, did not have acting experience. Really? So that's why Freakin was trying to get him into the moment. But for anyone else, like an Aaron, Ellen Burstyn or a Linda Blair or Jason Miller or Max von Sendow, you know, somebody like that, like trust your, trust your actor then. Yeah. You know, and if there's, if there's something that you're not getting from them, then be like, Hey, we're not getting this. You need to go farther. That's understandable. Like I'm not, I'm not willing, I'm willing to go all in. I'm not willing to be tortured. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure. Like there's no reason that they should have done that, that whole scene or that bedroom in a freezer. You know, again, that's something you and I talked about with Linda Blair. That poor girl was wearing barely nothing through this yeah. whole thing. It's a wonder that like she didn't get frostbite or hypothermia or, you know, anything like that. And and I imagine that they tried to take as much care of her as possible. Sure. But at the same time, I, you know, after a while, stuff's going to happen. Right. So I, I don't know, man. I, I, I Just a bridge too far. Yeah. I understand. I understand the all in. And I understand wanting to wanting to see your vision be made. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, trust the people that you've you've hired to, to make the to make the thing happen. Yeah. That you makes sense I mean? to me. That makes sense to me. And so although I, I point out this doesn't contradict you, but it seems like Stanley Kubrick and some of those guys do this crazy stuff where they just mess with people. They mess yeah. with them psychologically and stuff. Well, the guy who does who did the uh, the Revenant, uh, I, I forget his name, but he directed the Revenant, he directed Birdman. You know, I've heard that he does similar things. And I don't know, man, I, I, I get it. But at the same time, Christopher Nolan is my favorite director. And you've never heard Christopher, you know, you've never heard something from you, you never heard like Heath, <laughs> Heath Ledger didn't die because Christopher Nolan pushed him too far. You know what I mean? Yeah, like hung him off an actual balcony. Yeah. yeah. You know, Christian Bale didn't break a limb because Christopher Nolan was like, no, you've got to do it like this, Chris. And then like, you know, throws him off something. You know what I mean? Like, sure. There's a fine line. Of course, this was made, what, almost 40 years ago or 40 years ago? Yeah. So things have changed, but sure. Come on, man. Well, talking about actors and having a lot demanded of them, Linda Blair. Yeah. She couldn't be more cute, man. She looks like the platonic ideal of the little girl. Like big cheeks, smiley, talking about horses, you know. Um, let me ask you this question. You're not a parent yet, but put yourself in that mental space. How do you let your little girl play this part? There's a lot of movies that you and I reviewed where you've said something similar to that, and I'm like, eh, I can see. It. This is the one. This is the one where I'm like, there's no way. I don't get it. There's no way. Yeah. So I think in, in other other films, basically my idea is character formation. Mm-hmm. It's not good for a kid to be 
a celebrity. Right. Maybe they're asked to say or do something that's inconsistent with what your values are. So here I'm worried about her psychological framework. Yeah. I mean, it, we're not going to highlight the, the scenes, but there's some in here where I, I'm sure it's not, I know it's not her voice. Right. But even the things her body has to do to gesticulate to match what they have her say, I've got no interest whatsoever in any child under my care ever even being asked to think about doing something like that. Yeah. And and not to be a prude, but I mean, if you've seen this movie and, and I imagine that anybody listening to this has seen the movie, there's a certain amount of vulgarity yeah. in this role that well, she was like 14. Was she that old? Maybe. She I, looked I, younger I than that I, to I me. don't know. She might. I, I'm not for sure how old she was. I'm, I'm just guesstimating. Um, but anyway, any 14 and younger, heck, 18 and younger, there's no reason that you should be doing this. I understand it. I understand it for the context of the film, but you know, in your hypothetical scenario, there's no way that I could let my daughter do it. Yeah. It's terrifying even to think about that possibility, but Blair is a really good actress at whatever age she was there. Yeah. My favorite scene with her in terms of her acting, I've already alluded to. She's in this interview with a psychiatrist because they're trying to figure out if this is mental illness or something more sinister. And we get this tight shot of her sitting in a chair. It's just her face that's on the screen. And she has this dead-eyed, flat affect, grumbling voice performance that makes me believe there's another intelligence that's operating now rather than the little girl who actually inhabits this body. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. And it's where she's, you're starting to see, you know, one of the things that really happens to her is her face is transformed. She gets these really awful chapped lips that break open and whatnot. You're starting to just see the very beginnings of a bad chapped lip come over her there. Yeah. Uh, That's an incredible performance for for a young lady to pull off there. And I'm, I'm impressed. So this movie came out in 73. So it's 45 years old. Um, Linda Blair was born in 1959. Okay. So she was probably 12 to 13 while they were filming it. Incredible, dude. Yeah. Incredible. Great actress. Yeah. But boy, I wish you hadn't. I, don't know, I just wish nobody had to play that role at that age. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, we should just go ahead and say happy birthday to Linda Blair. Uh, we're recording this on January the 26th. And she was born January the 22nd, 1959. Well, happy birthday, Miss Blair. Yeah. So happy birthday, Linda Blair. Uh, clearly, we coincided that with her birthday to do this review. Yeah. That's how sophisticated our booking is around here. Right. I mean, you know, when you turn 59, you usually have two guys do a podcast about your most famous movie. Sure. It's a cultural, you know, it's a part of our heritage to do right. something like that. Uh, Max Van Sydow playing Father Marin was much younger than he was made up to appear yeah. during this movie. It's one thing that's always amazed me because I knew he had done something for the video game Skyrim back in like 2011. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this dude was ancient as the Bible back in 73. Like, how's he still alive? Yeah. But it turns out he was much younger and they made him look much older. Yeah. Well, you know, he was in, uh, golly, what's the Minority Report? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was in Minority Report. He looks old as sin there too, but he was just in, uh, the last thing I remember him being in was The Force Awakens. That's right. Yeah. I'd forgotten about that. Well, I looked up pictures of him today, Mm -hmm. and it's amazing how accurately the makeup artist from The Exorcist predicted what his future face would look like. That's probably not as crazy as I think it is, not being a makeup artist, but his face has clearly changed from when he was a young man, uh, but they got it right. Yeah, so uh, it's been probably 15 years, 15 to 20 years since the last time I saw this movie. And uh, of course, back then, Max on sit out wasn't somebody on my radar like he is today. And so the first thing, you know, that's one of the first things that we see in the movie is his face. And I remember being like, how how old is he? How has he looked like this for the last 40 years? And so now, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. you, you tricked us. We're, we're exorcist marks. Yeah. <laughs> Still real to us. I've been worked, brother. <laughs> worked myself into a shoot. Well, speaking of appearance, Jason Miller, who plays Father Karras, Damien Karras, to me, he makes this movie. I mean, yeah. you can't conceive of this movie without Linda Blair, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, but he's the emotional backbone behind this movie. For sure. I mean, he is your point of emotional connection, even more so than the mom. Yeah. Because mom is off on the fringes quite a bit. She yeah. kind of drops in every now and then. Uh, the, the thing that's most specific to his performance, I actually think, is not anything he did acting, but his face has every crevice and crag you would expect from a priest struggling with his faith as he's having to confront this incredibly evil thing that has yeah. taken up residence in the body of this child. Absolutely. He is uh, a product of great casting. Mm-hmm. Good call, man. Yeah. Good call. Like they, they needed somebody that has worn the weight of the world on their face. And I don't mean that in a negative or derogatory no. Me, uh, no. means. And, and they got him with this guy. For sure. So this guy is dealing with feeling like a failure because he can't provide for his mother, keep her in a safe place. And then when she falls ill to put her in better care, right. he's dealing with losing his faith. He's dealing with a demon. Uh, like you just said, he wears it all right there in his face. Face. He wears it all right there in his face. And who goes to the casting director? If Droopy the dog was a human, I believe it would be Jason Miller. <laughs> Indeed. The power of Christ compels you, happy people. Like, that's, that's how I feel. That's what you can come to Saw Something Scary to get. Droopy the dog confronting a demon. That's good. Come I need a young priest, an old priest, and a cartoon dog. Come into me, happy people. <laughs> Speaking of him coming in, uh, having the demon come into him, so there's a pretty famous book called Shows About Nothing. Okay. The subtitle is Nihilism in Popular Culture from the Exorcist to Seinfeld. I get why that person is describing Seinfeld as a show about nothing mm-hmm. because it's self-consciously a show about nothing. Right. I mean, that's even their title or like their tag. Exactly. Right. But I don't think it applies to The Exorcist. I think one, clearly, as he said on the record many times, Blatty wanted to write a book to ask people about what they thought about the supernatural. Yeah. So he had he had big aims with this. But the fact that Karis, playing a priest, sacrifices himself on behalf of this little girl. He takes the evil into himself in a way that he knows he's going to have to kill himself to rid the world of. I don't think this movie is nihilistic at all. I think this movie is redemptive. Yeah. It's this character who can't even say that he's a faithful believer taking evidence of the thing that he can't believe he believes in into himself and dying under the weight of it. I mean, yeah. that you know, I don't want to go too hardcore on the Christ imagery, but that's the Christian motif, right? Like Christ sure. dies on behalf of other people. Well, that's what Karis does here. Right. That's not nihilism. That's kind of beautiful. I think audience is connected with it too because his death's so memorable that those stairs in the Georgetown area became a tourist spot. Right. I went to D.C. last year for a conference professionally and I can't believe I didn't go over there. But if you, you know, if you're going to D.C. anytime, go to the corner of Prospect Street Northwest and 36th Street Northwest and you'll find the exorcist stairs. Take a picture there and send it in to us. Yeah, for real. We'll send you one of our first t-shirts whenever whenever we get them made. Absolutely. And if, and if for some reason you can get evidence of a demon on, on camera, we'll send you two. <laughs> the only other person I want to comment on as an actor is Lee Cobb. He played Detective Kinderman, and I really enjoyed his performance. Yeah. Kind of the, this again, this comes through really clear in the, clearly in the novel, but he captures it. The detective who's not entirely sure what's going on, but he's going to keep being nosy until he figures it out. Yeah, for sure. He does a great job with it. Uh, and, you know, he's not in the movie a ton, right. but when he pops in, he's very memorable. Uh, and I love the fact that he's such a cinephile. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's great. Um, if, if we're still on this subject of actors real yeah, quick, man. I want to just dote on Mercedes McCambridge, who is the actress who provides the voice for the demon-possessed Reagan. Now, is she the one that people didn't even acknowledge was involved in the movie for yes. a long time? Okay, yeah. Talk about her. Yeah, so um, she went through a pretty crazy regimen to get her voice to sound that way. Uh, she insisted on swallowing raw eggs and chain smoking to alter her vocalizations. Um, so for, she's rocky. Yeah, pretty much. Furthermore, she had been sober for X amount of years and decided that she was going to drink to help. Really? Yeah, to help. I don't know if it was the mindset. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, she wanted to drink whiskey as she knew alcohol would just distort her 
voice even more and create the crazed state of mind of the character. Wow. Uh, as she was giving up sobriety, she insisted that her priest be present to counsel her during the recording process. At Friggin's direction, McCambridge was also bound to a chair with pieces of torn sheet on her neck, arms, wrists, legs, and feet to get a more wrist, more realistic sound of the demon struggling against its restraints. McCambridge later recalled the experience as a horrific rage, while Friedkin admitted that her performance, as well as the extremes with the actress put herself through to gain authenticity, terrifies the director to this day. I believe it. Yeah, man. That's one of the scariest parts of that whole movie. Yeah. Just the voice. So, you know, for the, for the longest time, everyone thought that it was just Linda Blair. As a matter of fact, when, when we were going into this, I even said that to you, right? Uh, and then upon doing research, I realized that that's wrong. Um, Linda Blair was nominated for an Oscar for this role, for Best Supporting Actress, once they found out that Mercedes McCambridge was the voice of it. It pretty much, I mean, you can't take back a nomination, but it pretty much disqualified her from winning the award. Gotcha. Uh, which, I don't know, man. I, I still kind of, I'd have to go back and check to see who she was up against and what movies were there and stuff, because she'd still be tough competition. Absolutely. 12-year-old girl, 12, 13-year-old girl going through that stuff? Come on. Sure, sure. Um, we're not the first ones to ever talk about it, but obviously this movie went off like a bomb in the world in which it was first seen. We talked about the way this movie holds up while we were watching it, and really for me, if somebody went in and edited this thing, and they just replaced the cars you see, mm-hmm. I would believe this movie was filmed very recently. Yeah. You know, it's the cars that really date it, but the people who experienced it in real time, uh, they were on a roller coaster too. Have, have you read about the barf bags that they gave out? Because the first audiences were, I guess, with the pea soup stuff, yeah. joining Reagan in the projectile vomiting, so they had to give out those uh, barf bags as well. Yeah, people were fainting in the aisles. I mean, uh, there were a lot of EMTs that had to be on call during uh, showings and screenings of the movie, you know, at different cinemas and cineplexes. I'm trying to think if there's been anything remotely comparable to that in my lifetime. Raw. Oh, yeah. I mean, we weren't showing Raw in national yeah. theater chains. Uh, yeah, that's true. I, I mean, no, nothing, you know, you hear of stuff like that, right? Like Saw. Mm-hmm. Some people, you know, would get, get freaked out about the Saw movies and stuff, but uh, I, I don't think to this extent, and, and obviously, you know, a lot of it is, is that in 73, I doubt that anything like this had ever been made, but also you're dealing with a really extreme content. Sure. You know, and, and especially, um, I don't want to say that we've, again, I'm not trying to get super spiritual or anything, but I feel like that as a, as a nation, as a society, we were more afraid of those things 45 years ago. We were less secular, for sure. Yeah, than, than we are now. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, clearly that would be be terrifying. Sure, sure. I, I went back and tried to look at some of the early film reviews of this, and I think Ebert is the one who said that it's it's crazy that this made R rather than either NC-17 or X. Like, one of the notable critics of the time was saying the rating should have been bumped way up for that, I guess, for that exact reason. Uh, it earned 10 Academy Award nominations. I'm try that without the uh. The film earned 10 Academy Award nominations, Best Sound Mixing, Best Adapted Screenplay. It actually took home one of the highest grossing films in history, over $441 million worldwide. And that's after some re-releases, but still, $441 million. First horror film to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. Uh, rightfully so. Absolutely. Um, we've talked about this before, but adjusting to inflation, this is the number one gross, highest grossing horror movie of all time. Yeah. There, there were some films this last year who took a shot at that. Right. And each one of them, well, two of them eclipsed, right? Get Out and It eclipsed it? Uh, I believe so. Uh, but not adjusted yeah, for Yeah, not inflation. adjusted for inflation. But yeah, I think, uh, well, I know that It, I think, did maybe $600 million worldwide. And I think Get Out did a little bit more of that as well. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, so I'm not for sure on that. But yeah, adjust, uh, adjusting for inflation, it's, it's it's you know, it's over a billion dollars for The Exorcist, which is insane. Yeah, no kidding. So this is 15 years after the initial release. But out of all the critics I read, you know, their reviews for this film, the one I liked the most was from Mark Kermode, writing for the BBC Film Review. This is from 
1988. He says, there's a theory that this, excuse me, that great films give back to you whatever it is you bring to them. It's absolutely true with The Exorcist. It reflects the anxieties of the audience. Some people think it's an outright horror fest, but I don't. It was written by a devout Catholic who hoped it would make people think positively about the existence of God. William Peter Blatty, who wrote the book, thought if there are demons, then there are also angels and life after death. He couldn't see why people thought it was scary. Isn't that crazy? That Yeah, that's I've, insane. Uh, Kermode goes on, I've seen it about 200 times, and every time I see something I haven't seen before. And I feel that way. So in this one, I told you, I think it's a, it's a matter of the cut. But there were a bunch of stuff that I say, oh, I, I don't remember that happening ever before, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but there are things that grip you in different rewatches. So I didn't realize just how much they emphasized that Reagan killed her mom's director friend, Burke, Burke in this film. You know, I, I knew that was part of it. I knew there was allusions to it, but it comes through crystal clear on this last viewing. Good movies hold up. Mm-hmm. And I think this one does too. They, they give you new things every time you watch them. We were talking about this driving in today about Get Out. Yeah. Get Out does something very similar. So quality, quality holds up basically. Yeah. Do, you, do you feel like that this movie outside of the techno- technological advances, um, and, and I guess maybe you, you mentioned this already, but I, I guess I just kind of want to hammer it home. Despite the fact that there's no like laptops or iPads or cell phones, this is a pretty evergreen movie. Like you could pretty much, you could pretty much plug it into today's society and put a couple things into it and it's, it's good to go. I do because none of the action requires or, or rather would be changed by the presence of technology. Yeah. This is different. So with the X-Files, you know, I've been rewatching those for a long time. Love those. And they have cell phones, but there's so much of this stuff that can be solved with an email. Sure. Or everybody having a cell phone rather than just FBI agents. In this movie, nobody's going to be on their Mac when they're in a in a bedroom with a little girl speaking reverse Latin. Right. You know what I mean? Those things are just not going to be there. What are you going to tweet? So I think that... A lot of stuff. <laughs> I can think of about eight right now off the top of my head. Note to self, unfollow all exorcists on Twitter. Hashtag this heifer crazy. <laughs> I just think that the lack of technology is... This is one of those films where it would make sense that there weren't a lot of people doing smartphone stuff. Sure. Now, will they will they make a demon possession movie where everything goes on social media? Yeah, I just read a book that I like where the, the premise is a family who thinks their daughter is possessed brings their, uh, doesn't bring their, brings a reality TV crew in to record things. Of course. Be- well, because it's the only way they can afford the care she needs. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. It's by a writer named Tim Tremblay. I think it's called Head Full of Ghosts. Somebody's going to make a movie out of that thing. And it's going to be a pretty good movie, I it's bet. It's going to be William Freaking. He's going to just beat the trash out of all of his actors. I need more demon movies. Um, Act afraid! Act afraid! Yeah. So, you can make a movie full of tech and demons. Sure. But this one doesn't require it. And oh, if you we- handle it realistically, you wouldn't have a lot in that room. Well, our first our first review was a movie full of tech and demons. That's true. That's true. Uh, again, if your daughter's possessed by the devil, you're not going to spend a lot of time on social media either. You know, that haunted mother, she's not going to be engaging people in texting. You, you know what I mean? I don't know, man. There's a lot of chain letters on Facebook. <laughs> you know, cr- call me crazy. I just am a little skeptical about their authenticity. <laughs> One like for a hundred Hail Marys to help my daughter get out of this demon spawn that she's in. Yeah. yeah we need to cultivate our Facebook list a little bit better. <laughs> Prayers for Pazuza or whatever the name of the demon is. Share this 17 times and Jesus will return bodily. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's my take on that. A um, couple interesting little details. This movie's famous that because there's, or excuse me, famous for having a lot of creepy elements happen during the production. Uh, actress Jack McGrowan. Excuse me. I'm not saying that right. Jack McGowran. How would you say that? Actor Jack McGowran. Okay. McGowan and Vasiliki Maleros. Yeah. Okay. Miliaros. Miliaros. Thank you. Both died when the movie was still in post production. Their characters also died in the movie. Okay. So who was Mr. McGowan and Mrs. or Miss Milios? One of them's got to be Burke, Milios. right? Yeah. Let me. I'll find out. Let's find out. One, a two, 
or three? Or three. Linda Blair's grandfather also died during the filming of The Exorcist. Uh, Max von Sydow's brother died on Max's first day of shooting. Oh, wow. The son of Jason Miller was nearly killed in a motorcycle accident while oh, filming was going on. And famously, at one point, shooting was delayed after the set caught fire, destroying what was supposed to be the McNeil's room. And allegedly, the only part that survived unharmed was Reagan's room. Okay, now that sounds terrifying, but if it's built into a freezer, wouldn't that have kept it from... Don't ruin this with irrationality. <laughs> You're right. Oh my gosh, it's insane. How, how dare you try to be realistic here, Derek? Uh, Jack McGowan was Burke. Okay, I knew one of them had to be Burke. Who else died in the movie? Oh, uh, Karis' mom. Yeah. That was uh, that was Miss Miliaros. I did not nail that down as a female name yeah. when I was reading it from our notes. Maliaros. Maliaros. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, what did you get to say about this movie, Derek? Any details that stand out to you? Holy smokes, dude. She was 89 years old. She looked it. She was, she was born in 83, and then, of course, she died in 73, right before the, the movie came. Her only credit is the exorcism. That woman lived through a very, very changed world. Listen to this. Uh, was discovered by William Freakin in a Greek restaurant in New York City. She had no acting experience when he asked her to appear in The Exorcist. Is that not crazy? Well, apparently it's just native to old Greek women to know how to nag their children convincingly and yeah. guilt trip them. Yeah. Sorry if you're a Greek. Well, uh, yeah, well, you've seen my Greek, my big fat Greek wedding. <laughs> yeah, good point. We'll just stereotype everybody off those two film performances. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We're, we're free to do that. You've seen Dean Martin. You know what's up. Anyway, you, you I'm sorry. I, I, I just wanted to know, rails. yeah, any details from the movie that you wanted to highlight before we start bringing it to a close? Uh, I mean, man, just the, just the, um, sleep. Man, just the, the parts of the movie that are iconic, right? The head spin, the pea soup. Um, I, I'm not going to name it, but some of the more graphic imagery. Yeah. Uh, this movie is as terrifying to me as a 32 year old man as it was to me when I was 12 years old and watched for that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, very much uh, so. I, you know, you and I, you and I uh, watched this a couple days ago and then time got away from us and we weren't able to record. And when I got home, it was like 10, 10 30, somewhere through there. And I just immediately just threw every light in the house on for the first 30 minutes that I was there. Cause I was like, you know, cause my house is creepy anyway. Sure. And so, it, you know, that just shows you. And, and things like that don't happen, meaning, right? You and I watch uh, at least one horror movie a week just to review this, you know, for the show. Things like that don't scare me as much as they used to. But this movie still scares me. This movie still puts a twinge down the back of my neck, you know? With you, exactly. My my version of that was going to a home that was filled with my family. You know, I sleep in bed with my wife every night. There's somebody right there. But I had a really hard time going to bed that night. Yeah. You know, you hear the, the voice of Mercedes in your head and sounds like pure evil and just made it hard to go to bed. Yeah. So this you know. movie still still gets me too. Yeah. You know, the, the heat kicks on or, you know, you hear a noise that you're not, you know, you're not accustomed to or you're not prepared for. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, this is how I die. Yeah. Or this is how I go on living with yeah. some monster inside of me. Yeah. I'm glad that I, glad that I sacrificed my body for a podcast. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> well, if you want more from this world of The Exorcist or you want to know more about the making of the, the show, I've got some recommendations for follow-up. The first season of The Exorcist TV show, I don't want to give it away, but it connects to this movie. That's all I'm going to say. If you want to see more, it, it's not, yeah, I don't want to say more. I'm going to stop right there, but you can pick up the first season of The Exorcist. I don't know about season two because I'm not kept up with the show so far. I plan to, but season one anyway, you can re-engage with this world. I highly recommend the novel for people who can handle it. The, the version of the novel that I recommend is the 40th anniversary edition. There's some more content in there, and it makes a tremendous listen on audiobook too. If you like hearing scary stories, just buy the audiobook version of this, throw it in the earbuds. I think you'll get your fright quota met. And lastly, there is a podcast called Inside the Exorcist Podcast. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. It's 
it's pretty involved. There's a lot of production value in it. They, they do theatrical staging to like tell their story. But this is a nuts and bolts about how the movie got made. Okay. The craziness that went on with the making of the movie and the fallout afterwards. I think they initially planned for it to be a kind of a short run and it went, I think, double the length of episodes they initially planned. So if you like the, again, the nuts and bolts of making movies or you're really interested in this film, that's a great listen. Yeah. Uh, speaking of like the, the craziness that went on with this movie, just to kind of backpedal just a little bit. Did you know that Linda Blair had to like hire bodyguards for like half a year after this movie came out? Because I don't know if it was like hyper religious people or whatnot, but she was receiving death threats. Oh, of course. Yeah. And I was just Everything's like, death threats, man. Anything that yeah. makes an impact gets death threats. Crazy. But I mean, just think about the world that we used to live in where you make a movie like this and people are like, she's of the devil. We've got to get rid of her. Yeah, for real. And well, I say that now this week in our off mic lives, a guy who runs a professional wrestling magazine said he gets death threats over some of the things he says about professional wrestlers. Yeah. So I'm not sure that we're any better. <laughs> I think the world's going to yeah, be that way. Yeah, that's true too. I think he was working his brother. He may be. Um, oh, and also just following up, just some final notes. The immediate sequel to this, The Exorcist Part 2, The Heretic, is mm-hmm. awful. Okay. And and that's the one with Linda Blair. Yeah. Okay. She's in it. It's awful. I really recommend avoiding it. Yeah. The third one, though, does connect to this storyline, and it's a decent watch. It's not going to be uh, an all-time or anything, but if you want more Exorcist, there uh, there's there's a lot there that you'll pick up with from that movie. Kinderman's in it, and another character from this movie is repeated as well. Okay, and uh, Kinderman is a different actor, though, correct? Yeah, yeah. because this that movie was made in, like, 90, wasn't it? It's much more recent. Yeah, which, I mean, 90 was, like, 30 years ago. Sure, just compared against 73 or whatever, I guess. Yeah. Then there's these two prequel movies. Okay. Are you familiar with those? I, I, I feel like it, yeah, but I'm not for sure. It's a really interesting Hollywood story. Okay. So they wanted to do a prequel to The Exorcist. They took the script. A guy made most of the movie. When the early cuts started coming back, the studio hated it so badly, they refused to release it, brought in an entirely new director and crew to reshoot the entire film. And It's like Superman 3 or Superman yeah. 2. Yeah, Superman 2. That's, that's a good comparison. So eventually both versions of the film are released. One is called Exorcist Dominion, I think. I can't remember the other, but they're both set around the first time that Father Marin encountered this demon. Now, there's allusions in this film that we watched in The Exorcist from 73 that Marin and Pazuzu or whatever know each other from a previous encounter. Mm-hmm. It plays out in these prequel movies. Okay. And I'm not going to tell you either one is better than the other because they're neither one particularly good. But it's such a rare occurrence to have two versions of the same script yeah. out there for consumption. Some people might want to go look that up. crazy part about those movies is, is that they put Max von Sydow in it, but now they've de-aged it to where he looks like he's 25. <laughs> Got the downy effect from the <laughs> Avengers. <laughs> he's actually 68 years old, but they've de-aged him. It doesn't have the same effect because his thin, his thin black hair doesn't seem the same. Well, on that note, Derek, I'm going to ask if there's any other things you want to talk about. The 1973 masterpiece of terror known yeah. as The Exorcist. This is for real a cinematic masterpiece, man. Uh, no, dude, I, I pretty much feel like that we've covered it all. Um, I mean, obviously you could get into like hyperbole and, and urban legends and things like that, but I mean, then we'd be here forever. Uh, you know, and obviously we're not trying to take up our listeners' entire day by going through all that stuff. Uh, I'll just say, I'll just reiterate what I said earlier. This movie is terrifying. Uh, possibly the scariest movie that we've reviewed so far. Yeah, I think for me, holds up as that. Yeah. So, scale of one to ten, what would you give it? Eight? Mm, I'm probably going to go nine. Okay. And I don't really know why I wouldn't give it a ten. I mean, everything I want from this is there. It's just, it's weird to say like a movie about demonic evil is a ten. Right. Do we see something scary? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that some of the uh, some of the uh, unmentionable imagery in this movie knocks it down for me uh, because 
there's really for me there's really no reason for it. Uh, so I think that's why eight, eight, eight and a half is where I'd, I'd probably sell it out at. But but some of the stuff that happens in the movie, I'm like, ah, I can't I can't justify giving it a ten for those reasons. It makes it horrific. Yeah. But if they just told the story of her doing what she did, right, you would you'd have a sick place in your stomach. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, ten thousand downloads. Thank you so much. Woo! Hope you have enjoyed this expanded episode where we take a look at maybe the best horror movie of all time. Definitely the highest grossing horror movie of all time. Thank you for every one of those 10,000 downloads. Yeah, we are very appreciative um, of, of that. You know, to, to be going at this for a little over a year and to hit 10,000 downloads is, is amazing. So thank you guys so much. It's, uh, you know, I, I know that I said something uh, like this similar in the 2017 year in review, but I've had a blast doing these and I, I you know, I think that I speak to you as well when Absolutely. I say that. So, uh, you know, as long as you guys are along for the ride, we're still going to, you know, we're going to turn these out every week and, and uh, you know, still have as much fun as, as hopefully you guys are as well. Well, friends, we're obviously very thankful as we just mentioned for the for the downloads. If you'd be so kind as to get on iTunes, give us those five-star ratings and reviews. That helps other people who might enjoy the podcast find it as well. We certainly want to hear back from you directly, so you can get on our subreddit at forward slash r forward slash saw something scary on reddit.com. You can get on saw something scary.com and use the contact us form. Obviously, we're on all the social media networks. Uh, anything you've got to say back to us, we, we're excited to hear, so feel free to do that. Yeah, uh, you know, we try to be as, as uh, open and uh, fan-friendly as possible, and uh, so yeah, we always love to hear from you guys, for sure. Where can they find you on the interwebs, Derek, in case they don't know what I'm talking about? Uh, DerekZoo.com. You can find out all the information about me from there. And Jeff Wright? At Wright Jeff, most social media platforms. There you go. We're at Scary Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> I don't know why I had to emphasize Twitter so much. You know. So guys, thanks so much for listening. 10,000 downloads. Uh, you know, let's get 25,000, and we'll, maybe we'll do commentary over this movie. I don't know. We'll figure it out. 